Welcome to the Bike Pack Adventures Podcast. I am your host, Chris Panaski. This podcast was created so as to share the stories of bike tours, bike packers, and endurance cyclists from around the world as they embark on amazing adventures. Through their stories, you'll be able to learn the ins and outs of bike travel. You'll get insight into various countries and cultures around the world, hear fantastic stories of their journeys. Through both mine and my guests' experiences, you'll learn about the pros and cons of specific gear, bikes, and bike setups. If you're new to bike travel and considering going on an adventure, I hope the podcast provides you with that extra little bit of motivation to make it happen. I want to thank Panorama Cycles, Redshift Sports, Restrap, Race Day Fuel, and Brockton Cyclery for supporting Bike Pack Adventures and helping to keep me on the bike. Check out the show notes for more information about these amazing companies. Thanks and keep on pedaling. Hello and welcome back to the Bike Pack Adventures podcast. Spring is in the air. Oh my god, it's so nice. Uh, the weather these days is above zero every day. And the beautiful part is it's still below zero at night. That means it's prime time for making maple syrup. I have tapped 15 trees this year. Not so many, but um, I am getting a ton of sap. I think in my garage at the moment, I have um, 140 liters or so of sap. Fire's going outside right now as we speak, um, boiling away a bunch of sap. I think tonight I'll have done about 60 or so liters. So yeah, it takes a lot of time. I mean, it's a, it's a significant amount of time. I mean, friends and family keep going, oh, just bring me some maple syrup. And I'm like, man, if I were, you know, it takes me probably three hours per liter to make um, of syrup, maybe longer. And yeah, like I'm not just going to give it away. Who do you think you are? Um, no, I, I mean, I do give some to friends and family, but not too much. Um, it's, you know, it's got to last me a year and I'm not going to make like 20, 30 liters because that's a shitload of work. I know a few other people in the, uh, that listeners who, uh, who follow along have messaged me over the last year saying, Hey man, I make maple syrup too. And, and they make a lot more than me. So they are set up. I'm using, uh, warming pans that you'd have like for catering service on top of a stove that I've cut holes in. Uh, it's a big stove, a homemade wood stove. It works really well, but it only evaporates about uh, 10 to 13 liters or so of sap per hour. And if you get a good evaporation pan, like a two foot by four foot pan, I think I read they can evaporate like nine to 12 gallons per hour. So it's like four times more. So it's insane. I don't have that. They're like 500 bucks. So whatever. I'll just use what I have. Anyways, enough about maple syrup. It it is a nice hobby. It is delicious hobby. It is a delicious hobby, I should say. I accidentally made a liter of maple cream by overboiling, but damn, is it good. Yeah, I've been trying to get in some last fat bike rides in these days. Uh, The mornings are really nice still. They're crisp. Uh, if the trail hasn't been destroyed and I typically ride Brazilian or trail 79 here in Chelsea because it's, uh, it's not far from my house. It's great to get up there. 
Oh, I had an amazing March break. Um, you know, last week was the first week back to school post-March break, and it was an insanely busy week. I wanted to get this episode out last week, and I just didn't have the time because every day I was just busy at school, coming home. I was still a little bit run down from the ride the week before. and Yeah, I'm going to actually record a ride cast for it because there's so much I can talk about. It was on the Petit Train du Nord. And highly, highly recommend fat biking that trail. It is amazing. Um, so much fun. Such a nice time. So yeah, there's that. If you enjoy the podcast, guys, I always ask it. I know it's a, it's, it's a continuous thing, but please consider supporting the podcast. Uh, you can do so through patreon.com slash bike pack adventures. And I really appreciate it. It helps so much in so many ways. On that note, let's uh, jump into this week's show. And I will uh, just dive right into the episode intro. So in this episode of the Bike Pack Adventures podcast, I had the chance to connect with Jerry Kopak. It's quite interesting because he had recently been on a couple other podcasts, but I felt there was still so much I wanted to actually learn about him and figured there's not much better time than the present. So when he actually reached out, I thought he just wanted to promote his book. I knew he was releasing a book. But surprisingly, we didn't actually talk that much about it and instead spent our time talking about his journey from working in corporate America to founding a hospice and to eventually taking off on a two-month bikepacking trip in Africa, which led to a journey that lasted nearly two years. With a continual question propelling him forward, Jerry only ever tried to answer the question, am I using my time well? In the aftermath of his adventures, Jerry has taken on a role with Warm Showers, uh, on, the, on the board of governors and also as the finance dude as a means of giving back to the community that has helped change his life. You might also recognize his voice from Bike Life, the Warm Showers podcast, as he has recently taken on some of the duties to lighten the load of the original host. Jerry, welcome to the Bike Pack Adventures podcast. Hey, Chris, thanks. So we were just kind of talking and I mentioned my wife is from Iran and Jerry was starting to ask me questions and shoot them at me. So I thought I better push record. <laughs> <laughs> Smart. Yeah, no, I spent about 15 years living abroad. So um, I was away for a long time before I came back to Canada. And um, yeah, so it was only after I got married where I was like, okay, I guess I could settle down and, you know, try to be a responsible adult, whatever that means. <laughs> at, at what age did you become responsible? <clears throat> Um, it's to be determined, but, uh, <laughs> Work we, in progress. yeah, we moved back. I was 39. So I was three years ago. So I'm 42 now. Okay, um, gotcha. yeah, to start a family and stuff. I mean, you know, Canada's a pretty good place to have a baby cause you get about a year of parental leave total. Yeah, so wow. actually I think for Quebec, it was, um, between her and I was 13 months. So not quite yeah. the same where I live, I don't think. No, not at all in the U.S. I think anywhere. I have friends that work for the State Department mm. and stuff. Oh, my phone, my computer is beeping at me and I don't know why. Um, yeah, I have friends that work for the State Department in the U.S. And, you know, it's like two weeks or two days or something. It was pretty bad yeah. for fathers and it was not so great for mothers either. Yeah, what do you do in two weeks, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I took uh, I took 15 weeks off. So Good for you. And I took it late. I took it at the end, so I would actually be able to do stuff with the baby because she was old enough yeah. to go on the bike trailer and stuff. And yeah, it was good. That's cool. How yeah. old is she now? She's uh, 15 months. So okay. Yeah, I've been back to work just for, I guess, two months now, two and a half. Yeah. Yeah. Probably so running around, getting into stuff. Oh yeah, man, she's all over the place. Yeah, <laughs> she's she's it's something else now. It's starting to really hit that age. 
Um, so yeah, Jerry, why don't you tell us about yourself? Um, you know, it's good to have you on the show and, uh, love to know more about you a little bit of your background, you know, where you're from, where you, how you grew up, what kind of family you were in, all that fun stuff. Ah, we're going to go deep. Okay. Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm, I hope you didn't make plans tonight. No, I know you have plans. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> yeah. So I grew up in this little small I don't know, kind of quaint farm town. Like if you, if you typed in middle America in, in the internet, in a Google search, it might just come up with this little small town, 20 minutes South of Lansing, Michigan called Eaton Rapids. Okay. And it's just, it's this little small farming community. It's 5,000 people sits on a river. There's a little Island right off the, uh, off the, one of the rivers. And as kids, we would go and get a loaf of bread for a dollar and feed the ducks after school. Other than that, just a pretty, pretty Midwest, common Middle America sort of upbringing. And you'd mentioned that you're 42 now, and I'm, I'm seeing your, your beard just kind of similar to mine. Yeah. And uh, I'm, uh, I've started saying this out loud because I think it'll help me come to grips with it. Like, I just turned 49. Okay. And so that means I'm just sort of clinging precariously to, to my 40s, sort of trying to suck all the life left out of my 40s. But uh, I've, I've bike packed through 18 countries. I haven't lived abroad the way you have, but I've definitely spent some time in some faraway places that have for sure shaped my perspectives mm-hmm. on life. Yeah, I wonder uh, if, I, if I would have started bike traveling before, you know, like how that all would have changed. Because, you know, I, I lived abroad so, and I worked, you know, I started, I lived in Russia for a few years when I was in my 20s and I just wow. wanted to travel somewhere really obscure um, and study the language and partied a lot. Uh, but that's where I started teaching English. And then after that, English was just like the hook to get me somewhere so I could spend time and travel. You know, I used a ton of couch surfing back in those days, um, hosted a lot of people, then warm showers. And, um, you know, I just wonder how different it would have been if I'd have cycled more earlier, you know, because I'm sure mm-hmm. I would have been like, okay, well, I don't need all that money to travel. I could just, you know, hustle in different ways. And, tutor on the side maybe in random countries or who knows you know like uh, who knows i have no idea but you know i'm pretty happy with my journey it was good what were you uh what did you want to do when you got out of uh school man i studied uh i studied criminology but i had no intention of like it was you know i always tell my i'm a teacher so i tell my students i'm like you know whatever you decide to go to university for make sure i mean probably you're not going to do that anyway so just have fun (laughs) and like Go travel first. Go explore the world. Figure out what you're passionate about. Because if you just go drop a bunch of your money on first year university just to, to fail a bunch of courses, it's not worth it. Good tips. Life yeah, lessons. <laughs> good one. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's amazing the perspectives you gain once you're a couple of years removed. Yeah. Yeah. I and was, it's I was I was kind of following this sort of what I would call like a, a laminated roadmap to success, mm-hmm. right? So a lot of what Western culture says is you get out of high school, you go to college, you get a good job, you buy a house, maybe you meet a nice girl, and then success is achieved. And it wasn't until I started working in these jobs that became really just soulless jobs mm-hmm. that I became a little disenfranchised by that. Yeah. What did you, what did you study? I was a finance guy. So. Oh, yeah, I actually, my first year at university was, uh, was a f- commerce, and uh, that sucked. So uh, that was the end of commerce. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I went to school for finance, and I thought I wanted to work in banking. So in the United States, the highest bank is in the land is the Federal Reserve. And so I had that on my, my crosshairs, and I, 
I got a job working for the Federal Reserve right out of college. And you're a couple years younger than me. And so I don't know if mm-hmm. you remember that that uh, perceived Y2K crisis. Oh, yeah. 2000. I remember partying and, that night, expecting yeah. everything to go to hell. But yeah. And so was I, except that I was working, right? And so my job with the Fed was to do a bunch of financial analysis and try to predict how much cash was floating out in the banking system and then predict how many people were going to lose their minds and want all their money back. Because just because the banks say we have this much on deposit, it isn't there because they loan it out for people to buy houses and buy cars. And if everyone freaks out and says we want our money back, well, the bank can't cover that. So my job was to try to predict how much money and how many people would lose their minds and want their money back once the world melted down and the yeah, zombie yeah. apocalypse happened, which never did. Yeah, and, and I think probably the U.S. doing that is probably a good idea because you look at, like, you know, countries in South America and stuff, and as soon as people start pulling out money because of a perceived crisis, co- economy collapses, you know? Like, yeah, as soon as that money exactly. starts to go um, and the lineups yeah. start occurring and banks run out of cash... Yeah. Everybody's screwed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so that, that was my job. And I guess if you're a business guy or finance guy, you might think like, wow, that's really cool, important work to be part of. And honestly, it was, it was dreadful. Like it was, it was just not that interesting. And I remember. How long did you do this for? Yeah. One year. Almost to the, <laughs> okay. to yeah, the that's day. That's not long. Yeah. So on the anniversary of my first year, you're supposed to have these this meeting with your boss, right? Like most jobs, right. like, Hey, what did you accomplish this year? What are your goals for next year? And here I am trying to make up some sort of BS, like, Oh, I want to work on this project. And realistically, I didn't want to be there. Like it was, it was terrible. I just wasn't happy. It was, it didn't really allow a lot of creativity, a lot of flexibility. And I grew up underneath a, a Korean war veteran father mm. who's just really, really strict and really disciplined yeah. and working for the Federal Reserve was just, basically one step removed from that. And so I remember when my boss was asking me, he's like, hey, what do you want to work on next year? And I was about to sort of spout off some nonsense. And he's like, let me stop you right there. We don't think this is the right place for you. And it just, it, it caught me off guard. Like, okay, I'm, I was trying to break up with you. And hey, you're firing you're me. Breaking <laughs> up with me. It's like, I was getting ready to quit. And like, so it was just this realization that, man, this is, <clears throat> The, the things that I thought that I wanted to do growing up in high school or in college, mm-hmm. they, they change, right? As you get older, yeah, yeah. you get into the workforce and have more perspectives. Well, I dig that whole family thing. My dad was Air Force, so it's, uh, okay. yeah. I mean, not Army, so definitely. I was in Army Reserves for a while, but Air Force is way more relaxed. But okay. it was still like house was, this is my rule. You follow it, you know? I, my buddy was, uh, I have a really good friend here in Ottawa that I grew up with, and he was like, I remember coming to your house to watch hockey and your dad would be like, if you guys are going to watch hockey, you don't talk. You keep your mouth shut. You know? And he's like, I just wanted, like, I was so scared to even talk about the play. And, you know, Cause my dad was like rules, man. I love that. Yeah. yeah. My dad was a, my way or the highway kind exactly. of guy too, yeah. but it wasn't about hockey though. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah. We're big hockey fans here. Actually, my wife's, uh, my wife's company has a, has an office in Lansing, Michigan. No way. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, I think they absorbed a company or bought in or somehow the partnership. I'm not sure. But anyways, they have a, they have a branch in Lansing. It's an IT it company. It wasn't General Motors, right? No, no. It's an IT company. Okay, gotcha. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So was your family adventurous or is it kind of uh, just 
you know, normal living small town America. Yeah, small town America. Parents got divorced when I was probably four. My dad stayed in Michigan. My mom moved to Boulder, Colorado, where she still lives. My dad is still in Eaton Rapids. Got four brothers. I'm the middle. Uh, we all played sports, but team sports, right? So we mm. weren't into bikes the way I am. Very right American. Now team sports Very everything American yeah and so I was I was a soccer guy I was a I was a basketball kid so that was, those are my two go-tos and interestingly enough I never got into hockey I, I love hockey mm. but I can't skate to save my life but the my partner now she had a D1 scholarship to play in North Dakota so she's legit so she took me out last year on my birthday because I had taught her how to how to cross-country ski how to skate oh ski. nice yeah and she's like, Hey, on your birthday, I want to, I want to teach you something. And so how to body check. Me out. <laughs> <laughs> body check, exactly. So there's this, this outdoor ring kind of close to our house. And she's like, Hey, we're going to go, we're going to go play hockey. And I was like, ah, I don't know about this. And at the time you know, I was 48 and like falling on ice, it just sucks, man. It's painful. She's like, mm-hmm. don't worry. Yeah. I got all my old hockey gear. I've got elbow pads, shin guards, helmet, like got it all. I even got a stick for you. And I remember getting out there and she's just skating circles around me literally. Cause she's, this is what she does. Mm-hmm. And there's this woman who was standing on the side, watching one of her kids just skate around. She looked at her with awe. She's like, ah, who, why, what do you, is this what you do? And she's like, do you play hockey? And C- Christy, my partner, she's like, yeah, I used to play a little bit, super humble. And then, you know, she looks over at me and I look like a baby giraffe, right? Yeah. Like I, and, and I'm, I'm athletic, but this is a whole different thing, way out of my realm. And so I'm pushing this, uh, this chair around that they, you know, teach kids how to skate. It makes me think of my oh, wife, she, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then finally Christy's like, stand up. You don't need that stupid chair. I'm like, Oh, uh, okay. I think I have this. So that was, that's the extent of my hockey experience. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I totally lost my train of thought. So, um, <laughs> yeah. What did you do your first bike trip? Like, how did that come about? Ah, great. So my first bike trip really was just kind of an afterthought. It was in 2005 and I had a friend from high school who was working, I think for like Nestle Purina or something like that, doing quality assurance throughout Europe for some of their factories. And she sent out this email to a bunch of people on a distribution list and said, Hey, I'm going to be in these countries. Let me know if you guys want to come visit me. And I had a friend who had done a bike trip and I thought it sounded like the coolest thing. And I thought, wow, Spain, Spain would be fun because I had taken whatever, two years of high school Spanish. So I thought that was better than going to Germany or Italy where I had absolutely zero language. Yeah. So I thought, hey, I'm going to go. And she said, well, I'm, I'm going to be working, but feel free to entertain yourself for a week and then I'll see you on the weekend. Like, okay, what am I going to do in Spain? So I bought this $50 old steel Peugeot road bike and threw some panniers on it and rode my bike into the Pyrenees up into the, uh, the French border. Oh, nice. It was, only, it was only about a one week trip, but man, something about just that open road, the mm-hmm. freedom. It was just, it was crazy. And did you, so whereabouts in Spain were you? So I started in Barcelona. Okay. Yeah. I love and Barcelona. And then rode through places like Girona and then up North. Okay. And then crossed the border into, into France. No, I'm not sure where Girona is, but were you kind of just hugging the coast or a little yeah, bit inland? Yeah, was. yeah. I was. I was hugging the coast like the first couple of days and then kind of trended more left and then went sort of northwest. Okay. I was going to say, yeah, if you don't hug the coast too much and we have an old steel road bike, you might have some real tough climbs, right? Like, And I did. And yeah. I did. So, I mean, I don't think anyone really travels light when you're bike touring, especially no. when you're carrying your own gear. 
but I wasn't camping. So I was, mm-hmm. I was riding from hotel to hostel <laughs> to pension. Mm-hmm. And so I was traveling pretty light, but at the same time, probably still carrying way too much stuff. Especially in but the early days of touring, when you're getting used to things, you kind of carry lots more clothes than you ever need. And yeah. it's just, I think that's the biggest space taker, not necessarily weight, but it just takes a lot of space. Right. And you, until you get that experience and realize, wow, I really don't need a third shirt or, you know, um, <laughs> I remember backpacking uh, through Europe after I left Russia in 2007 and I had one of these like 70 liter backpacks and in there I had jeans because I never wear jeans really. So I had a pair of jeans. I had a leather jacket just in case I'm going out somewhere and I need to look good, you know? Uh, Yeah. I had a couple nice sets of shirts and stuff and like things that just stayed in the bottom of that bag for, for a whole four months, you know, like they never came out maybe once, but did you have books too? Probably not. No, I think I took part of a book, uh, a Lonely Planet Guide or something. I just ripped okay. out, a, cut out a section or something. Yeah. But, yeah. See, I was definitely cutting on the weight. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just funny how it works. You'll, you'll, you'll shave weight there, right? Yeah. Oh, now, now it's like, man, the stuff I pack is so minimal. My wife looks at me and she's like, where? It's like a stupid, oh, there was a, there was a TikTok video or one of these videos recently. And it's like, the woman's like, where are your shoes? He's like, I'm wearing my shoes. It's like, <laughs> but, but where's your spare shirt? It's this one. It's like, but what are you going to do if you get cold? I put on my long sleeve shirt. You know, it's like one long sleeve shirt, one short sleeve shirt. Exactly. Very, very simple. Yeah. The things you learn along the way, but it was just because I think I had these giant voluminous panniers. Yeah. And I'm like, well, heck I've got the space. I might as well bring it. Right. Mm-hmm. And then you just, you realize that grams make pounds or ounces make pounds Yeah, and everything just sort of stacks up like, ah, oh, it's only, you know, half a pound here, a quarter of a pound there. Pretty soon you've added like 15 pounds of extra stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's like, that just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Yeah. My first bike tour too, I was in Indonesia and I remember exactly. It was like, I had two panniers on the back they were loaded, man. They, they were heavy. Like, and they only got heavier as the holiday went on because I thought, Oh, I'm not going to ship stuff back to Malaysia. It's like, why would I waste my money? You know? And I just carried it all. Like anyways. Yeah. So, uh, you made it to the border of France and then just kind of turned around and made your way back or, uh, I actually, uh, cause this was in 2005 and that's, I only had a two week trip because in America, two weeks holiday is, is kind of standard. It's kind of standard. Yeah. so I, I hopped a train straight back and the train systems in, in Western Europe is phenomenal, right? So it was a couple hours, what took me five days right up there. It took me probably half a day at best in a train ride back to Barcelona. Right. So went back, hung out with her. And after that, man, it was just, I was hooked, right? So I had the opportunity to go to, to Vietnam after that a couple of years later nice. with, with another friend. And that just completely knocked me way outside of my comfort zone. I, because, as it would. Because, you know, riding through through Western Europe, everything is nice. It's modern. It's not that dissimilar to the life that we live here yeah. in the States or in Canada. Mm-hmm. But Vietnam is different, right? So my dad's again, he's a Korean War veteran. And he's telling himself all these stories. And he's telling me all these stories. Like, hey, you know, there was a war there and they don't like us. <laughs> and you're going to be a POW. And it's like, oh, jeez, man. And the time I was maybe, I don't know, 33. So I was young, I was impressionable, but at the same time I was still pretty 
still pretty curious. So I wasn't going to be deterred. And the whole Google thing wasn't as big then too, right? So it's like you didn't Google things to know like, oh, wow, yeah, I could go bike touring in in Vietnam. Google Maps didn't really exist. You were still using a MapQuest probably. Yeah, (laughs) actually I was using paper maps. So I would sort of plot out routes, I think on MapQuest, but I didn't really have a phone that was very smart. And so Mm -hmm. we'd print things off and just plot them along. And of course we didn't have offline GPS. We didn't know where we were exactly on the map. And just a lot of these old roads were just, they're just kind of nondescript, discrete roads. You really just couldn't tell, was that mm-hmm. the junction to turn on or was this, and you just didn't know. Yeah. But that in the same way, it kind of made it a little more I don't know, adventurous and exciting because you really didn't know what was down this road. Yeah. I remember uh, kind of a tangent, but when I moved to Malaysia in 2011, they gave us cars in Kuala Lumpur or just outside of it. And I was going to live on the other side of the country. And rather than give us like one car for four people and say, okay, travel there together, they gave everybody their own car. <laughs> and they said, okay, so you guys head to Kalantan now and um, you should be there ten- tonight or late at night. And I was like, um, wrong side of the road. I don't know this country. Like you expect me to drive all night. We jet lagged. And they're like, yeah. oh yeah, maybe we could get you a hotel halfway. And, and I asked for directions. They printed us a MapQuest directions thing. And like, we got so <laughs> lost, man. We were like, and imagine there's four of you all lost trying to follow each other. Sometimes you in a roundabout for like five minutes, we're all just kind of following each other. Nobody knows what to do. You know, it's like, it's like a Mr. Bean episode or something. Who knows? It was, it was insane. Yeah. We made it. I don't know how, but we made it. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Poor planning. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so you, you did a trip in Vietnam, and uh, this was kind of like early days touring, right? Typical standard panniers, yeah. kind yeah. of a road-style bike or touring bike. Well, well funny you mention that. So mm. again, I came off of this sort of 1980s steel Peugeot road bike, yeah. and I realized that kind of skinny tires were probably fine in Spain, but in Vietnam, I think the roads are probably going to be a whole lot mm-hmm. less developed. So I didn't have a ton of money in my thirties. And so I came across this old, probably 1991, 92 specialized stump jumper. Oh, perfect. Yeah. And I took that, it was fully rigid. I probably paid 50 or 70 bucks for that. And actually through the same rear rack and the same panniers on the back of that too. But I, I had learned a little bit from, from my time in Spain. So I, I thinned things out a little bit, but I still mm-hmm. wasn't going overly like I still had two or three cycling kits, several pair of socks, several pair of underwear, yeah. different pairs of pants. Wasn't carrying jeans and a leather jacket, yeah. mind you. Smart. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it was I was definitely had a more adventurous bike during that during that trip. And for the Vietnam trip, did you did you pack any camping stuff or you're just like, you know, Vietnam, Southeast Asia, it's bound to be pretty cheap and just kinda go yeah, that route. Same. Yep. I didn't really start getting into proper bike packing until, oh, I want to say 2014. Okay. Where I had gone and met a, a friend down in Bolivia. We rode from La Paz, oh, Bolivia sweet. to Cusco, Peru along the Altiplano. Yeah. And that's when I definitely got out there. Mm-hmm. So camping at 13, 14,000 feet, which is whatever, just shy of 4,000 meters. Yeah, something like that. And it was, yeah, it was, it was definitely a feeling of being out there. And I, I've always lived at altitude and I had been in La Paz, Bolivia for a couple of days, which I think sits at 11 or 12,000 feet. We cycled this road called the death road. Oh, I've and heard of it. Yeah. That's supposed to be epic. 
It's super, super cool. I want to take my daughter and her stroller behind me on. (laughs) (laughs) So they, you know, they, it's not really a death row anymore. Right. And so you look at it, like if you fall off the edge, like, yeah, you're going to die. But the, but the road isn't the width of your shoulders. Right. Right. So you'd, you'd have to really be falling asleep at the bike to fall off, but I'm sure cars have gone off just coming around a corner. And Mm -hmm. again, a car is wider and people in South America, maybe travel a little bit faster on the roads, a little more recklessly. So there's definitely places where you fall off into the abyss, but Needless to say, just like you came back from Indonesia and you were fine, I survived the death road. But I remember one time, the only time I ever really have felt altitude sickness was I remember waking up in my tent one time after probably pedaling for two weeks in the Altiplano, being right. above 10, 12,000 feet. And I was with a buddy of mine from Boulder who was traveling through all of South America and trying to ride his bike back to Colorado over like a year. Was that Ryan? Uh, not no, Ryan no. Van Duzer. That guy, he spends more of his time in like Central America and he really likes Mexico. Yeah. This was a different, this was a different guy. This okay. guy's more of a, he's like a Wisconsin knucklehead. So okay. He rode, he rode his fat bike this entire trip, which I thought was a kind of a questionable choice, but regardless. It's, in, it's tough work. <laughs> yeah. I remember just waking up and just feeling like I was paralyzed. I was nauseous. I couldn't form complete thoughts. I thought I had food poisoning. My buddy's like, yeah, you have altitude sickness. No it's way. Like, well, how is that possible? I've been here for two weeks. I felt fine. He said, yeah, it hit me one time before I got into La Paz, and it just knocked me flat. And hmm. so unfortunately, with altitude sickness, the only real remedy is just to get down lower. Right. But we're in the middle of absolutely nowhere. And so we were a four-day ride from a lower altitude. So just slowly, slowly ticked off pedal strokes. So it doesn't – it won't kind of recede a bit if you just rest a bit or – Unless you have oxygen or something, I guess you can huff yeah, on. That might I, help. I, I wasn't, I wasn't, I, at least I don't think I was on the verge of, say, HAPE or HACE, which is uh, pulmonary edema or cerebral edema. Okay. Because that's what happens at altitude as well. So I don't think I had that going on. I just know that I had to pedal really slow and rest a lot. So mm. I probably wasn't, like you hear these stories about people summoning Everest and needing supplemental oxygen and having to get airlifted out of there because they're, going through cerebral edema or pulmonary edema, but I didn't have that. So long story long, I, I didn't die, but it was definitely a very unique experience about having altitude issues. Yeah. Very interesting. And what was your experience like in Bolivia? I mean, uh, I guess by that, na- by that point, you're considering yourself like a more experienced bike tour, yeah. bike packer. You're like, I know what I'm doing. Like, yeah. I, uh, I bought a proper bike so I bought this Surly Karate Monkey. Yeah, nice and bike. Oh. Yeah, it's absolutely <clears throat> indestructible. Like, it's just solid steel. I mean, it weighs like it's steel, mm-hmm. but you, you can't kill it. And so that was, that was my new bike touring rig. I thought, well, I'm turning 40 years old, and I'm going to treat myself to a nice bike, something that costs more than 50 bucks, because I think that this might be a lifestyle for me. I really want to do more of this. Mm-hmm. So I, I bought a proper bike. And the people in Bolivia and Peru were just, they were kind, they were generous. And the one thing that we stumbled upon in La Paz is the, the female wrestling circuit. Oh, yeah. So that was pretty entertaining. So if you ever grew up like I did in mid-Michigan, watching professional wrestling, people jumping off of ropes and yeah, suplexing yeah. people. And so they have, I think it's called the Cholitas. Cholitas? I think so. The, uh, this women's bike pa- this women's wrestling network and so I mean obviously it's staged but it's really entertaining 
So we, we watched that for nights, but you know, beyond that, the, the culture was amazing. The food was incredible. And of course the landscapes, right? I mean, you're traveling on, on the Altiplano. It's just, it's, it's views and canyons and passes for, for days. Yeah. I imagine it uh, sounds pretty awesome. And uh, how long did you use the Karate Monkey for? Is that kind of, the, that became the bike you used on? This is it. Yeah, this is it. So it's a 2014 bike. It's 2013 now. I just got back from a trip with, with Christy, my partner. We went to... It's 2023 North- now, by the way. <laughs> Not 13. <laughs> <It's date> stamp, <laughs> right? <laughs> and so we just got back from, from Northern India. We're up in the Kashmir nice. region along the Pakistan border. And yeah, it's, it's still going strong. It's definitely got some scuffs and some dents in it. Yeah, for but sure, right? She, she purchased a, cause she's, she's newer at this, this bike packing thing. So she got a, a Titus unit, not Titus, a, a Kona unit X. Oh, okay. Yeah. So another similar uh, steel frame bike, but she's like, Hey, would you ever get a new bike? I was like, there's no way this is this bike. This, yeah. I'm not a materialistic guy, but there is one thing and one thing that I own in my entire life that I would be heartbroken if I ever lost it, like anything mm. else, like whatever I, yeah. I could deal with. It. Yeah. So couch, a TV, a computer, but this bike just, you know, it's been through 18 countries and it's been over mm-hmm. whatever, 20,000 miles. And it's just, it's got stories. Yeah. So yeah. I'm, I'm never I mean, it. there's always the, like, you know, at some point it could break and that might make it have to become a piece of a wall furniture, but <laughs> you know, yeah. Getting it stolen or lost or who knows, like those are the heartbreaking ones, you know? Yeah. And I, and I've had bikes stolen, but yeah. this bike never comes out into the open air unless it's going on an adventure someplace. Okay. We had a, I had a girl on the podcast, uh, Marie Pierre Savard out of Montreal. And, uh, she went on a bike packing trip to, to, uh, Hawaii. Mm. And when she flew back her bike, like there were some pictures, it came out looking like they must've dragged it behind the airplane while they were taking off. Oh. Like just the entire hub ripped off the wheel that's in the box. Like it's unbelievable. The damage, like, and anyways, uh, the airline, reimburse her for her bike but it's you know just that piece of that who knows it was so destroyed like it's it's impossible to imagine they didn't run it over with like a a truck or something you know um yeah but yeah so luckily they reimbursed her and all that stuff but it's like imagine like this this thing that you had that you loved and all of a sudden it's just mangled you know yeah uh i've i've had to replace parts obviously i've had to replace wheels and stuff like that but the frame is the frame is still the same frame. It's I had it painted uh, Kermit green, mm-hmm. so it's kind of like a limey color, sort of like kind of like Kermit the Frog green. And I knew this guy in Boulder who runs a a bike frame building company called Mosaic, and I asked him. I said, "Hey, can you cut this bike in half?" Because Richie, <clears throat> the brand uh, brand Richie bike frames, uh, used to have this bike called the Richie Breakaway. And you would basically you could detach the top tube. And yeah, the, the commotion. Uh, what do they call yeah. those? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So they're called couplers, right? And so yeah, I couplers. thought, hey, I haven't seen a mountain bike that can do this. I don't really need a road bike that breaks apart or what called a cyclocross or gravel yeah. bike. Yeah. I need something a little more, a little more robust, a little meatier. And he's like, yeah, we can, we can install couplers on there for you. And so I got him to do that. And now my bike travels in this commotion uh, suitcase. Nice. And so it flies for free everywhere. It's not doing these giant cardboard boxes that yeah. doesn't fit into because i mean you, you lived in asia and mm-hmm. the taxis aren't huge there 
And so to, to throw a giant bike box in the back seat or the trunk of a, of a taxi yeah. in, in Asia or Vietnam or any place else, it just doesn't fit. Yeah. I remember, uh, making trips to the airport and like we, uh, well, Uber, but it was grab grab was the, they bought out Uber and, uh, you'd have to get a grab XL so that, you know, <laughs> you, you knew it would be an, a van or an SUV, but they, every yeah. time they'd come, they'd look and be like, Oh fuck. Like, why do I have to carry this guy's shit? Like if I have a bike suitcase, like I think when we left the country, man, we had a lot of stuff. Like, Oh, we had like, you know, I, I had already taken stuff to Cambodia and then Seema was coming to meet me there. And uh, cause I taught for one year in Cambodia on top of that. And, um, yeah, it was great though. It was, you know, nothing better than traveling with your bike and bringing it and knowing you have that piece of home with you. You know, it's, it's special. Did, uh, did people ever tell you like, Oh, not possible. It's not possible. Uh, yeah. We've had, had situations where we took two taxis. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The best I, was like, the best was in Cambodia though, putting everything in it, like two tuk-tuks and uh-huh. each, one of us in each tuk-tuk. It was pretty sweet. <laughs> I, I had that in India as well. And it was cause I, it would just be this really weird, uh, difference of opinion. Right. So there'd be some people who would look at me and it's like, no, not possible. Like, basically they just don't want to deal with it. And the other people are like, Oh Yeah. All Challenge accepted. <laughs> yeah, all is possible. And then and they'll take it apart and they'll jam it in there. They'll rip the back seat out of the car just yeah. so your bike will fit or stuff. It's like very, very resourceful. Other people will just be like, nope, sorry. Yeah, exactly. What's your what's your setup like on your bike though now with the with the way you carry your gear? I'm I'm guessing the panniers are gone, but they are. They are. But I still carry a rear rack on longer tours. Okay. Tell so us. let's I, dive into so, that. So yeah, this this is something I learned when I was I was traveling solo uh, through through India and through Nepal, and I met this this really interesting Swiss couple, and they showed me the value of carrying a backpack. And backpacks are really helpful mm-hmm. for hike a bike situations, right? So when you're dragging your bike over, like say a six thousand meter mountain pass or an eighteen thousand foot pass, and you're pushing your bike for five six hours. It's, it's better to get the weight off of your bike so your bike is easier to carry and throw around. And so what I have now is I still have a surly rear rack, but then I take a couple of bungee cords and I strap a backpack to it. Mm. And so instead of having the uh, more of the common seat post tube uh, that, that you can stuff all your clothes in, I have about the same amount of volume except it's in a backpack. Mm-hmm. And so I just strap that to the back with a couple of uh, either volley straps or bungee or something like that. And then when things get really steep or kind of rowdy, mm-hmm. I will take it off, put it on my back, and carry my bike as long as I have to. Yeah, I know. Uh, I know a few people that do that. Um, Tristan Ridley, uh, he he was on the podcast a long time ago, and uh, yeah, he rides a mid fat bike with like three inch tires or something. Okay. Uh, he's changed bikes since, um, but he used to always have a rack with a backpack, and that way he could also, you know, if he's somewhere where he wants to ditch the bike and go for a hike, he's got his stuff. Yeah, same. Um, yeah, there was so many reasons why he liked it. And I think there's a resurgence of that. If you look at like the arrow, arrow rear rack system with the, uh-huh. it holds like the, it's like a little harness that'll hold a dry bag. And so people are hooking these dry bags on, or, um, what's the other one from the UK there? They make the carbon fiber rear rack with the bags I and stuff. I forget thing. what it's called. Yeah. Um, it's fancy. Yeah. Um, so there's, there's a few companies that are really pushing the the rack idea and it's not a bad thing, you know, like I'm going on a a bike adventure next week, um, fat biking for the, in winter camping. And definitely when it comes to that, you need a rear rack. Um, I had to borrow one from a friend to fit the fat bike and, uh, I borrowed my brother's army sleeping bag so I can, uh, definitely be warm and, uh, packed everything up. 
Are you, uh, have you done winter trips like this before? Um, so I did a one night camp out with, a, with another friend here in Ottawa, uh, about a few weeks ago or a month ago. And, um, yeah, it was really great. It was cold. Um, so since in that time I, I returned the down sleeping bag I had, the problem was I was in my tent and I was sl- sliding off the air mattress onto the ah, cold ground. Right. And then it's cold. Yeah. And, but at the same time I didn't, I wasn't really happy having spent so much on a sleeping bag that I, I couldn't get around it. And, um, so instead I returned that and I bought like nice 45 North, uh, insulated fat biking boots, uh, which are amazing. So, and I've used them a lot more every day, you know, so it's good. Um, yeah. So I, I also, I picked up a bivy bag. I figure it keeps the air in a little bit tighter around you, keep sure. you warmer. And, uh, well, it's Within not going to tent. Hmm? Within the tent? No, I'm not going to bring the tent. Um, okay. Yeah. It's going to, it's not going to be particularly cold. I think the, the low will be like minus six Celsius, which is what maybe 20 degrees 20-ish, Fahrenheit. Yeah. 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 So, not too bad. <clears throat> Enough to freeze your water bottles, but not too bad. <clears throat> Yeah, exactly. And I'll probably have a camel back <laughs> under my jacket with my water. So should be all right. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, let's talk about. Um... Before continuing on with the show, I'd like to thank Panorama Cycles for sponsoring this podcast. Panorama Cycles is a bicycle manufacturer in Quebec, Canada, dedicated to backcountry cyclists that prefer gravel, snow and off-road trails. They believe cycling is a catalyst for adventures of all sizes, and that there's no need to travel across the world or to be a seasoned athlete to live epic outdoor adventures. Over the past year, I've been riding the Chick Shocks fat bike, the Katadin gravel bike, and the Taiga mountain bike. From everyday rides, bikepacking trips, and a multitude of races and events, these bikes have put a huge smile on my face every step of the way, while also getting me on the podium on the Wendigo Ultra fat bike race and helped me set an FKT on the Canadian Shield 400. In partnering up with the Bike Pack Adventures podcast, Panorama Cycles also wants to give back to the cycling community, particularly you, the listeners of the podcast. By using the promo code BPA10 when purchasing a new bike from PanoramaCycles.com, you'll save 10%. For more information on their environmental commitments or to check out their bikes, head to PanoramaCycles.com. Now back to the show. Your your most, I guess, your your big adventure. Um, you know, I, I think I, if I remember correctly, you went out for what is not meant to be too long a ride and then it turned into a couple of years. Yeah. Uh, you started in Africa. Why Africa? How did you plan this trip? Um, why Africa? So I mean, why not Africa? But I mean, at the same time, <laughs> yeah. like, yeah. And you know, I was, I was, I was running this, this hospice with my mom mm-hmm. and I had this opportunity again, and I had this little pivot where I switched out of corporate America and I had this opportunity to run a hospice with my mom. And you learned some really valuable lessons just about how, va- how, how precious our time really yeah. is. And then a couple of things just kind of life sort of happened, right? I mean, I'm not unique in that regard. Life happens to, to everybody at some point. And a couple of series of things just sort of hit me all at once. And I was given what I would call like this gift of time. And so I, I had never not worked in an office environment. I had never not worked 40, 50, 60 hour weeks. And then I found myself without a job, without a lot of other things. I had lost a close friend to cancer, had broken up with uh, the person I was supposed to grow old with all these things, right? But again, not unique. A lot of people go through similar things. I thought I was just going to head down to Africa to see an old friend who was living down there with his friend, with his family and working. And a couple of week trip, just going to be a little bit of a reset. Then Where I about? Back home. Uh, Zambia. Zambia. Yeah, I realized that I'm guilty of that. And a lot of people are as well. It's like, oh, I went to Africa. I'm like, Africa's a continent. It's a huge place. Yeah. Where'd you go? Like, yeah, I, I went to Zambia. Thanks. Good catch. 
and went to Zambia. I was just going to go down there, quick little trip, do a little bike packing and come back and sort of plug back in and, and get back on the horse again. And from there, I just met someone and said, Hey, you should go to Zimbabwe. And it's like, okay, cool. It's like, why not? And then from there I went into Botswana and then I had someone else reach out to me from Colorado. who's in the Peace Corps. And he says, Hey, if you're, if you're in Zimbabwe and Botswana, check out Madagascar. It's really amazing. I thought, okay. Yeah. Check out Madagascar. Madagascar you looks know, epic uh, from what yeah, I've seen. And so like. you start, you start thinking and like, okay, it's, I'm here. If, if, if not now, then when, like, here's this golden opportunity. And then, yeah. so after probably, I don't know, six or eight weeks, I was in the airport in Madagascar and I'm getting ready to fly back to Colorado. And I meet this woman from India. She's a professor and I'm telling her my story. And she said, Hey, you should go to India. I thought, Oh wow, I should go to India. Cause I'm, I'm more of a mountain guy. And it, it's funny. I say that because I was listening to your interview with, with Ryan Van Duzer a while back and he was talking about his bike trip back from Honduras. Yeah. And he, I mean, that guy, he loves jungles. He, he loves deserts. I hate all those things. I am a high <laughs> alpine person. And I was cringy when he was talking about the bot flies in his arms. Like that stuff just freaks me that was, out. That was gross. The video too. It's disgusting. Yeah. <laughs> and so I'm thinking to myself like, okay, yeah, Africa was, was crazy. It was amazing, incredible <clears> experience. <throat> And then, so I thought, okay, she's telling me about, about India and the Himalayas and like this, this I can relate to. Mm-hmm. So I planned this trip. So let's, to, uh, let's talk about Africa then, um, a little bit. Um, yeah. what was it like to jump into a bike tour and quite literally, well, not quite literally cause you're close to the ocean, but the middle of Africa and, you know, from places you had previously been, you know, Bolivia and Vietnam and stuff, you know, you've, you've kind of experience quite a bit of culture, but I think this is where you start to really see some differences. Yeah, you're right. Uh, obviously if you're in Spain, I look a lot like everyone else there. I mean, that's the first thing. They have more hair. (laughs) That is true. (laughs) And good call. And obviously when I'm going to Vietnam, I'm, I'm five foot 10. I don't know how many centimeters that is. I'm, I'm taller I'm taller than a lot of people in Vietnam. So I'm already yeah. starting to stick out a little bit, but now I'm going to go into Africa, Zambia and Zimbabwe and Botswana. And like, there's no blending in. Right. And so yeah. you're getting a lot of attention. So you're riding through these, these rural villages and it's amazing because people are kind. They're, they're generous and mostly they're just, they're curious, right? They mm-hmm. haven't seen somebody who looks like me riding this, this bright green bicycle through their village. And they look at me like, what are you doing here? But at the same time, everyone is, is eager to connect, right? They want to come and hear your story, even though there's not always a common language there, but through a series of charades and mm-hmm. smiles and gestures, like you can make it work, right? Yeah. And the kids want to ride it and they want to experience yeah. it. Yeah. And the, and the kids always want to race, right? And so they'll see you on the road and they'll, they'll roll up next to you and they'll want to race. And the bike is inevitably just some really clapped out thing with a, with a very out of true janky rear wheel, single speed, rusty chain, way too big for them. And it doesn't care, man, because think about when, when we were kids and we we're riding bikes, mm-hmm. like, Who bikes cared? were just yeah. everything like this freedom. You didn't care if it was your older brother's bike or if you got it from secondhand from someplace, like you had a bike and you had this ability just to go anywhere. And now you see this person that you've never seen before, like, doesn't have the same color skin as you talks differently to you and like what's he doing here but hey the common denominator is like he's on a bike 
So let's just go and see what he's doing. Let's race him. And that was really some of my favorite memories. Where did you stay? Did you stay in hotels? Did you camp at all on this trip? Or um... So, yeah, I really, I camped a couple of times, but primarily I was just, I was staying in hotels. And I started ride from, from city to city. So I started in Lusaka, rode down towards Victoria Falls, which is where Victoria Falls is. There's actually a, a town called Victoria Falls. Is there? Okay. I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're going to be obvious there, here, aren't you? <laughs> and, and, and then from there, I crossed into Zimbabwe, and I met a friend who's actually from Zimbabwe, but oh, okay. she lives in Boulder, Colorado. So we were friends. And so that wasn't coincidental. We had planned to be down there and meet up together. And so she wanted to – she was down there visiting family, and she's like, hey, why don't we meet while we're along your trip – and we'll go and check out a safari or, or a game drive. Mm, nice. And so I did that with her for a couple of days. And that that was fascinating because it, as a kid, we, we grew up watching National Geographic and reading these magazines and about lions and, and giraffes mm-hmm. and hippos and rhinos. And you, know, you see them on TV, but they're not real. Yeah. And then you get to see them, whatever, five meters away or 10 meters away. And like, holy shit, this is incredible. And so... I, I won't sugarcoat this and say like it was a super rustic experience because it wasn't. I mean, there's those things cost a little bit of money, but it was an amazing yeah, yeah. experience, and I'm glad I did it. I have um, we have a we have some South African friends and uh, that we met in Malaysia, <clears throat> and the one girl is going to be getting married um, next this coming Christmas, so you know, nine months from now, and so we're planning to go there. And her family, I believe. I know that somewhere they live anyways, it's near a reserve and stuff like from their back window on their deck, you can see like giraffes and stuff walking in the background. And I'm like, Oh, I can't wait. Like it's going to be unreal. Like, and for them, it's such a normal thing, you know, like, (laughs) like, Oh, there's a giraffe. Right. Probably like Canadians with deer or bears or whatever. (laughs) Right. I remember when I went to Alaska several years ago, like I saw a bald Eagle, which is the, the, the American national Amazing. bird. We don't see them around here. Yeah. But pretty soon, like, oh, God, it's a bald eagle. And then, you know, people going <clears> local, they're like, yeah, it's, it's basically, a, it's a pigeon. Like, we see them all over the place. Have you seen a golden eagle? Uh, I have. Oh, my God, yeah. they're massive. Like, yeah. I've yeah, they make, they make the, the bald eagles and stuff look kind of just like your average bird. Cause <laughs> right. I, I kept looking out for one when I was up in the Yukon, and all of a sudden I was on my phone with my wife, and all of a sudden I saw one, I was like, I got to go. I'm like, oh, you won't believe what I'm seeing. Like, it's just unreal it would look like a spaceship flying by me you know like just huge so as an american just hearing you say like oh when i was up in the yukon like that sounds super badass you have to understand that right (laughs) i cycled uh, in in 2020 i cycled from vancouver to whitehorse the yukon and then to winnipeg so it was about a 5,000 kilometer trip 5,500 maybe but um yeah yeah, i did it over a month period of a lot of intense days of riding but i bet it was uh it was just a you know, uh, COVID started, <clears throat> I had a summer off and it was a reason and we didn't have a kid yet. So it was the perfect time. And I was like, I'm going to go do this. And I preambled that whole thing with a vacation for my wife and I to Vancouver. So she wouldn't, you know, be more content to let me go do my thing. How'd that go over? Oh, it was good. Yeah. No, I had uh, she gave me six weeks and said, you have to be back in six weeks. Nice, man. Yeah, but she started counting it apparently from when we started the trip with our together part, and that kind of took off some biking <laughs> days, and I was a little annoyed with that, but <laughs> yeah. they can't be I too annoyed that. in the end, you know? Like <laughs> the, the clock starts now. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's all good. So anyways, back to Africa. Um, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So hotels, just the culture, right? How about the food? Um, you know, was there quite a getting used to things? Was it quite, I, I just don't know. So it was, I, I, it was pretty unremarkable, right? So a lot of, lot of beans, a lot of rice, which I'm great with that. At the time I wasn't a vegetarian. So lots of just chicken and real basic food like that. It isn't like going to say like Italy and like, oh my God, the food is amazing. Mm-hmm. Or say Thailand where the street food is out of this world. Like it was, right. it was food. Like it was, it was, it was sustenance. It sustains it was, you. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, it was, it was easy to come by, but there was definitely lots of sugary snacks in, in stores because okay. that stuff is cheap and it's, it's cheap calories. And that's not usually the food that I, that I gravitate towards for, for my body anyways, but that stuff seemed to be always mm-hmm. available. Lots of sodas and lots of just candy bars and other things you've never seen before, but just pure sugar. Yeah, yeah. And uh, how was the jump over to Madagascar? I imagine, like, to me, it just seems like, you know, it's, it's a whole other world, even from Africa, you know, because it's its it own is. island and it's so separated. Yeah, and it's so diverse. So I landed in Antananarivo. People call it Tana for short. Okay. And on the southwest, it's very arid. It's very dry, desert-like. In uh, the east side, it's it's very it's wet, so I don't I don't know maybe it's like Vancouverish or something like that. Okay. And there's kind of like this, I don't know this 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 mountain ridge that kind of that sort of uh, separates the island in half. So the west side is is more arid, the east side is is more 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 humid. And I didn't realize they had such incredible beaches there too. And I'm, again, I'm not a beach guy, but off the the north and northwest, there's this region called Nosy Bay. And it's, it's amazing. People go there and they get their scuba diving certifications mm-hmm. there. So, but again, that's not, not why I went there. I went there for the culture and the, and the culture is, is fascinating. It's, it's obviously, it's like many other countries in Africa. It's, it's, it's not a wealthy country. So yeah. not a lot of people are, are cycling there by bike. And if they are, they sure as heck don't look like me. Yeah. There's a strong, there's a strong Peace Corps, American Peace Corps yeah. population there. And I got, I got super, I was super fortunate. Uh, I think the second day that I was there, I, I wandered into a hostel looking for just a room. And I met this girl, she was in the Peace Corps. We immediately became friends and put out the, the, uh, the word that there was this uh. American guy cycling through Madagascar. And like every couple of days I would find myself in this really tiny rural village. And sure enough, there would be, trek mountain bike leaned against a building and if you went inside there would be some american person in there it's like hey i heard about you you're jerry and it's, That's it perfect. was pretty comical but at the same time it was kind of nice to sort of have a network yeah to because I, I didn't really have a plan right? like i didn't i didn't start there and say okay i'm going to spend three weeks here i'm going to go from here to here to here i was kind of just winging it because i knew yeah. that i had this opportunity to sort of travel a little more open-ended. So I was like, well, where do you guys think I should go? What's cool? What should I not miss? And I had the opportunity to spend time in a lot of their, their really remote rural villages. Yeah. And that was, and that was a, a massive perspective shift. Like that was eye opening. And so it was the first time that I really remember ever seeing places that didn't have running water. And if it did, you definitely couldn't drink it. And there was yeah. no, there was no sanitation system and the food was, was super basic. It was just piles of rice mm-hmm. and you see people who are, you know, who are malnourished and it's like, yeah. it was, it was a reality check and you realize like, 
how fortunate am I to be able to do this one? And I know that if things go sideways, I, I can get on a plane and leave and be back home. And it was just this amazing realization of privilege that I had. Yeah. That this is their life. And for my friends working in the Peace Corps, that was their life for two or three years. Like mm-hmm. if things were hard, like tough shit, this, this is life. Yeah. So. Yeah. In 2007, I was uh, going through Ukraine. So after uh, leaving wow. Russia, I had a, a couple friends that were Americans in Russia that joined the Peace Corps and they were in Ukraine and just spent a summer with these guys traveling around the parts of the country where, I mean, all over the Crimea, which now is in Russian hands, right? Um, and then mostly in the east of Ukraine because that's where my buddy was posted. And um, yeah, it was a different world, man. Like, you know, Ukraine is not a rich country. And some of the towns that we were in, like this one town, it's it's actually, it's in the, uh, it's not in the occupied Russian area. It's Konstantinovka or Konstantinivki in Ukrainian. And you know, during the Soviet area is where they made all the big stars, you know, the Soviet stars. They had a big sure. factory there. The whole town was basically just for those stars. <laughs> so it's insane. And uh, now it's like a town of like 80,000 or something down from a couple hundred thousand. And you'd have like just falling apart, you know, sewage running down the roads and stuff, you mm-hmm. know, just because the money is pushed in the wrong places or, you know absorbed by a rich person who's becoming richer and whatever, you know, yeah, it's, yeah, it's pretty, sure. pretty bad. But, um, yeah, Peace Corps was amazing. Like I would, anywhere I travel in Ukraine, I'd message my buddy and say, Hey, who do you know in this area? If I was looking for yeah. a place to, or somebody to meet or somebody to stay and yeah, it was perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Madagascar <clears throat> definitely showed me a whole different aspect of life and how people live. Like it was, it was impactful for sure. Yeah. And did you, uh, did you fly from Madagascar to India then or? Uh, I, you know what? I didn't, I actually, it, it took a while for my visa to process. And so I actually flew home and changed some things on my bike. Oh, so okay. I was, I was riding a, a fully rigid, uh, front fork mm-hmm. and you know, this is all bike nerdy stuff. Yeah. No, I love put, it. <laughs> I went and put a hundred mil front fork on it. Okay. Shock just to give me a little bit more cush because yeah, yeah. I was just getting beat up on the roads. I've been considering the same thing because I'm riding rigid on my mountain bike right now and I'm thinking like, you yeah. know, I'm 42 and I start to feel it in the wrists and the shoulders sure. a bit if I don't have something yeah. eating up a little bit more suspension, uh, like a squish. Yeah. Yeah. And I had, I had ridden that bike through the Altiplano in Bolivia and Peru, all through Zambia, Zimbabwe, Botswana, Madagascar. Yeah, I was just getting knocked around. I thought, this is This is crazy. <clears throat> I'm going to go put a shock on it and it doesn't really weigh that much more. No. You can lock it out on, on pavement or tarmac and then open it up when he starts getting a little more rowdy. And so I went home, did that kind of checked in with some family and said, Hey, you got, you've been gone for whatever, almost, almost two months on this trip. And so we're glad you're home because we're worried about you because again, we, we, everything becomes sensationalized. People watch the news. They, they read the news and mm-hmm. like, oh, this crazy stuff happened in Africa. And we're so glad you're home safe. I was like, I, I appreciate the sentiment, but really I, I, I didn't have a, a second of a minute of, of any day that I ever felt like I was in any way in danger. And, and I realized that's just my experience because stuff happens everywhere, but it wasn't my experience. So came home, checked in with some friends, saw my parents, changed out some bike, and once my visa came through for India, I was gone. 
But this time I, I booked a, a flight that was that was one way. I didn't book a return flight. So let's let's stay nerdy for a few minutes here. Um, oh, do it. Do you uh, do you use flat pedals with normal shoes, or are you kind of like the bike shoe clip in kind of guy? Oh, I'm gonna nerd out even more on you. Nice. I I still <laughs> use the toe clips with the straps. Oh yeah, yeah yeah. Like the like yeah. restrap or some of these companies make yeah. I mean, like old school stuff, just like have a little metal yeah. toe clip with the two leather straps come out from the side. Like yeah, that's yeah. what I still use. And the reason is because, again, like you, I take one pair of shoes mm-hmm. and this is even nerdier. Like, so there are these this sandals by this company called Keen. Yeah, I use Keen sandals. Yeah, yeah. I like them because they've got a closed toed. So I'm not going to mm-hmm. smash my toe or yeah. rip a toenail off. And I don't know, like I, I live in, I live in Colorado where it's cold a lot of times and the cold doesn't bother me. Do you use Keen sandals in the winter work. in Colorado or what? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, for sure. I don't yeah. know how when cold I winter was, is there. Was, so. w- uh, definitely cold for sure. Okay. For sure. Minus Fahrenheit and, and minus Celsius. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. But let's, let's be real. Like I'm not going out and going skiing in my sandals. Fair right? enough. I'm just saying more when, uh, when I'm bike packing or bike touring. So when I was in the Himalayas, the wintertime, I had my, my keen sandals just because that's what I had. And if I got cold, I'd put on a pair socks, of ski right? socks. Yeah. And then if it became snowy, I'd the, uh, the, the poor man's Gore-Tex, right? I'd get a plastic bag, yep. slide it over my socks and slide it into my keen sandal. And so that's how I travel. It's one pair of shoes. And most of the time it's great because I don't like wearing socks. So I'll take the socks off. I'll just go in the sandals. Mm -hmm. And it's great for, say, water crossings. It's great for walking around town. The sandals are aggressive enough that you can hike a bike in them. And something about that toe strap just kind of keeps your foot exactly where it's supposed to be as opposed to like a flat pedal where it kind of gets all jacked around a little bit that's a good call I'm, I'm interested to try some toe straps um you know at some <laughs> point i mean i i'm not a fan of the flat pedals because of that you know like yeah. i don't like my foot sliding forward i use clip-ins um keen for a while made a pair of sandals that had clip-in now you could Remember put that. clips on but they just stopped producing them for some reason which is weird because everybody talks about it. like oh, man i wish they still made those keen clips you know like economics right i guess they weren't selling enough units so there weren't there yeah. weren't enough uh dirtbag bike packers out there buying yeah them. maybe with the advent of bike packing and the growth there more people yeah. there might be a, a res- maybe there's a good reason to have a resurgence in those because there's a lot Start of people that would campaign. love to have sandals on in the woods you know yeah yeah so are your if you're taking one pair of shoes then are your are your shoes pretty flexible? I mean they're not your eh, they're so so. I mean I probably wouldn't go shoes. No, I no no, I wear mountain bike shoes. I wouldn't go on a 10 kilometer hike though, you know. Um so Yeah. it kind of limited me. That that was the trip out west particularly. I was kind of limited. I didn't have flip-flops even. So like if I wasn't wearing shoes, I was barefoot. Yeah. And yeah, uh yeah. but it was okay, you know. For that trip it was fine. Um and for the stuff I do around here it's typically okay, but if I'm going to go on a big trip yeah, I'd probably uh, maybe bring some Crocs or something as well. I don't know. Yeah, I, I agree. Something about just being able to walk around a little bit. And yeah, have an option, yeah. which is if you're going minimal, that's that works for me. So, and your Karate Monkey is that they're flat bar or drop bar bikes? Oh, flat bar. They're flat bar. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely not a, a roadie. I mean, I've I've done some cyclocross racing yeah. back in my in my history, but. I'm I'm a mountain biker through and through, so I'm all about flat bars. And with with big tours, I'll throw some bar ends on there just to mix up the hand position yeah. a little bit. 
Yeah, I'm a big fan of the like the ergon hand grips with the little flat area, just kind of rest you like your palms. Those. I do. I but um, I have was recommended to try. Um, what are they called? Fat paw. Um, who makes those? Anyways, they're like a big jelly type hand grip for my fat bike this winter, and okay, I think I prefer the ergons. Yeah. So. You don't feel like your hands kind of slide off going down some kind of rowdy or down? No, no. Yeah, I've okay. never had an issue. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I crash yeah, regularly anyway, so maybe that's the problem. No. <laughs> you, you need some uh, some swish up front. That's what you need. Yeah. Put a shock out there. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, that's uh, it's happening this year, so that's for sure. Um, yeah. So yeah, you went to India and uh, and Nepal, right? Yeah. How yeah, was after that? that next trip? That must have been awesome. Uh, oh I I'm at, I'm at home in the high alpine. That's that's incredible. So I had actually had gotten pretty specific planning this trip. And I was going to land in Delhi, take a quick flight to the north near the Pakistan border to this, to this small town called Leh, where there's an airport there. Mm-hmm. And it's, I mean, it's right almost on the Pakistan border. It's in the Kashmir region. So there's, you know, there's, some, there's some tension up there between Pakistan and India, but I never saw anything. I never felt anything. The people in India are incredible. So India is kind of a combination of organized chaos and just chaos, right? So the roads yeah. are... Like nothing I've ever seen before, but it, it works for me, man. I've been yeah. there. It's like Vietnam's times. roads, you know? You walk blindly yeah. across the road, you will make it. If you try to, like, dodge bikes, you're going to get killed. Exactly right. I noticed that in, in Hanoi, yeah. just trying to cross the road downtown. Like, you just have to go with the purpose and with intention, mm-hmm. and it'll be fine. And so I had planned this trip from on this route called the Lay Manali Highway, and it's become more of a known route now. Okay. So this would have been 2016. And so there wasn't a whole lot of, of beta on this. And I don't think the bikepacking.com website existed then. So it was just kind of, I kind of discovered it through someone's rudimentary blog. And I thought, okay, I can probably knock this out. And from there, I'm going to keep going south from Manali into Rishikesh, cross over into Nepal. And I had this ambition to cycle the Annapurna circuit which has been traditionally more of a hiking route. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, this, I've this known a few a, people really that have cool. bike it, yeah. Yeah, and it's, and it's becoming it's becoming more approachable from a biking perspective. So they're making, I don't know, roads up there as opposed to just really rowdy footpaths. Mm-hmm. And from there, that would have been, I think, six or eight weeks, and that would have been plenty of time for me to have a reset, to come back to the United States, again, plug back in, because – in the U.S., two weeks, maybe three weeks is about all the time you ever get off from a job. And yeah. between being in Africa and then being in India and Nepal, that would have been probably pushing three or four months, which is yeah. a long time. It's and pretty. So it's get- pretty amazing that, like you know, Canada's not far off. I think three weeks is pretty standard in corporate world. Um, yeah. But I mean, my sister-in-law came to Canada. She works for an insurance company. And she gets two weeks. You know, so it's two three weeks is nothing. You know, for a year, it's like nuts. it's just. You know, look at France, five years, or sorry, five years, five weeks minimum, you know, like I think yeah. that's, that's the start on their right, annual leave exactly. like, for almost any job. job. Yeah. Here's your job. Here's your cubicle, your desk, and here's your, your stipend for five weeks vacation. Yeah. yeah that that's why great. I became a teacher because, you know, 11 weeks is way better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I totally get that. But teachers work hard though. Yeah. It it's, is, uh, we just, like, we just ended the March break next week. So it's like, oh, thank God, man. Like I needed a break, you know? Yeah. And I've only yeah. been back for three months since I had my last break. So I was like, I needed it. <laughs> my dad yeah, would say I don't uh, work hard enough, but whatever. 
my my partner Christy was a teacher for a number of years, and she she would get her three months off, or whatever, in the summer. But throughout the year, she's definitely working those extra three months. Mm-hmm. So it's it's it isn't like teachers just like oh cool we can just go and work our nine to five and then take three months off. Or yeah, that's yeah. not how it works. You guys, no, are- there's a lot of planning time and stuff. You know, I go to I t- I typically am at work forty minutes early every day and I try mm-hmm. to pound out every single thing I could possibly need to do that day, you know? And yeah. And then I hustle on my breaks and recesses and lunch because I don't want to be there after work. You know, I just want to get out and come home. Yeah. So, yeah. but it, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a busy day. Every day is busy. Yeah. But it's rewarding work. I assume, right? Yeah. For the most part. Yeah. yeah. Nine, 99% of the time. You get, you get yeah. to influence kids' lives, right? And, and, and shape their views and perspectives. Yeah, exactly. Share stories about biking and stuff. They, they get yeah. so impressed, you know, when I show them pictures. They're like, oh, my God, yeah, yeah. seriously? They're like, what are you going to do on March break? I said, well, I'm going to go on, ride my bike for probably four or five days and sleep in a ditch or in the woods or whatever in my bivy bag. They're like, no. <laughs> and it's like the craziest thing ever, right? Like, yeah. I can't believe you're yeah. going to do this. Is somebody paying you to do this? I'm like, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's now that you have been in it long enough, you realize, like, that's not really a big deal anymore. I, yeah. I remember people would ask me when I was traveling through Zambia or Zimbabwe or the Himalayas or Peru or something like that. Like, that's incredible. And you were by yourself? And were you scared? And how did you find food? And I guess the person who's never done it before, yeah, it sounds absolutely insane. Yeah. But once you kind of get into the groove and the rhythm and it just becomes life, I think it's, it's like anything else, right? It's like going to the grocery store. Like, yeah. you know, people, people eat in other countries. People sleep in other countries. People drink water in other countries. Like, yeah. Pepsi's everywhere. Like, Yeah, exactly. It's going to be fine. And you know, it wasn't until I sort of came back, I started reflecting back after this two-year trip that I took. I was like, wow, that was, that is, that's a pretty big deal. But at the time when you're in it, you're just thinking about, okay, mm-hmm. where am I going tomorrow? How far am I going to try to get to? Is there water here? Is there a village here? Can I get food here? And it just becomes normal. So at what, point, at what point did the two-year trip start? Was that like the Africa part or is it after you left that and went to India? Like a, when, no, when do you constitute the start of your two years? Yeah, so that was Africa. That was after I stepped away from hospice, okay. after my breakup, after my friend yep, died. Yep. Okay, I'm just going to go and have this reset. Okay. And so, so there was the Africa portion and then from India and Nepal. Again, I was just going to cycle my way back to Kathmandu in Nepal and thought, okay, that's enough. I'm going to head back because that'll be... Mission achieved. Yeah. Four months. Like, yeah, okay. You've had this really great run and head back. And probably a week before I was going to book a flight to come back to Colorado, I met this couple from Switzerland and they were also teachers and so we're sharing stories about places they've been, their, their bike touring, places I've been, and we're just kind of really getting along over dinner one night. And they said, hey, what do you, what are you doing next week? I said, I don't know. What do you mean? They said, uh, well, what do, you, what do you do next week? I said, well, ask me again another time. And he said, well, we're thinking about going and to like say Northeast Nepal and then into Northeast India and then Thailand and then China and, and Eastern Tibet. And I thought, wow, that's, 
that's incredible. You guys are so lucky. <laughs> yeah. It's like, well, I was, I was just going to go home. It's like, why? I said, well, cause I've been gone for, you know, two months oh. now, four months. It's like, we've been gone for two years. I'm like, holy crap. How is that? And they asked me, I was like, Hey, so are you married? I said, no. It's like, do you have a job? No. Do you have kids? No. Do you have a dog? Like, no. Let me ask you again. Why are you going home? And I said, I don't know what do you have in mind? They said, well, come with us. And I thought, wow, if I'm trying to live by this mindset that I had learned from running a hospice to, to always say yes and yeah. step through doors that open and take advantage of this, of this gift of time, then I should really go. And I thought, you know, what's the worst can happen? I've known you guys for an hour and a half, right? So sure, I should probably go with you. And if worst case, we will not get along. We won't understand each other's jokes. Like you won't find me funny. We'll we'll travel at different speeds. Well, we'll just annoy the mm-hmm. shit out of each other. Yeah. Worst case, I, I peel off and I go my own way, or I hop a bus and I go home like I planned. But it turns out that we were together essentially every day for like the next six months. Oh yeah. So wow. We, so we pedaled. Yeah, we pedaled through Northeast Nepal together. We t- we pedaled through India. Who was the inside of the India. spoon? No. <laughs> <laughs> Good question. <laughs> 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 <I'm off guard. laughs> yeah. So it was a uh, it was a ton of fun, and they they we we taught each other a lot of stuff. Yeah. And it was it, it was really an enjoyable experience because up until that point, I had been traveling solo through Zambia and Zimbabwe and Madagascar and then India and Nepal. And so it was really cool to sort of be Jerry again, to have a personality because mm-hmm. you know, when you're traveling, you don't speak the local language. A lot of it is, is mimes and charades and hand gestures and smiles yep. and internal and conversations. Now, yeah. And even though English yeah. wasn't their first language, they spoke mm-hmm. really good English. So I was able to just talk in full sentences again, which, which felt nice. That's a good point. So what was, um, so you guys, did you go through Bangladesh? You said didn't No. no. So started in, in Kathmandu, went straight East on this road called the Midland Hills highway. And don't be confused is not a highway. Mm -hmm. It is basically the, the rowdiest road, boulders, rock slides, ankle deep sand, soul sucking sand as I would call it and that was the Midland Hills Highway so we got to the border of India and then got to be a little bit more developed and then went up towards uh, Darjeeling and Sikkim and different provinces that really largely in India had forgotten about because sort of the, the main mainland India uh, is more like Mumbai and Delhi and those places but people don't realize that India kind of wraps around to the east around yeah. Nepal yeah. and there's this whole other region that most of the world doesn't even know about. And that was amazingly uh, life-changing to go through there. Just people had never seen someone on a bike who looks like me again and just absolute curiosity. But even though they didn't speak much English, the one phrase that a lot of people knew out there was selfie, bro. (laughs) So I would hear that all the time. People would flip around on their bikes and be out walking. They would come put their arm around you throw a camera in your face and want a selfie. So I, I'm sure I'm probably, my face is probably on a hundred thousand different internet sites throughout India. I, ta- I taught English in Asia. I know exactly how that feels. <laughs> okay. Um, and it's pretty cool. Yeah. So I, I, I was just pulling up the maps cause uh, I mean, I've looked at this area before and I've talked to people that have ridden up and around Bangladesh and 
Yeah. Um, always interested in that Bhutan, you know, like, uh, you know, I see that they, it's just expensive, $250 a day for a visa or something crazy like yep. that, you know? Yeah. <clears throat> and so I was in this region called Arunachal Pradesh, which is in India, and it's right along the border yeah, of that. Bhutan. And so there's a junction in the road they came to, and to the left goes to Bhutan, and to the right just goes deeper into Arunachal Pradesh. And man, I wanted to go so bad because you read the stories yeah. about how they're this the happiest country in the world, and the mountains there are absolutely mind blowing. They look like comic books up there because it's mm-hmm. just it's so unbelievable their mountain range. But then, yeah, you you get into their their daily tourist visa or whatever it's called. It's two fifty a day. Yeah, and yeah, that's just that's a no go. And I can you know I can live in in India for call it. 10 to 20 dollars a day yeah right yeah and that's like all in that's hotels and everything right yeah, yeah. it's food accommodations mm-hmm. water whatever and so like I, I can't pay 10 or 15 times that price yeah i think bhutan is very much a you know it's a trip you might do for a week and really splurge and sure you know that'd be like that year's trip because you're like okay that just crippled us you know like but uh-huh. it was it would be so worth it but yeah, it's a hit at the right time you know <laughs> um, so from uh, Arunachal, Arunachal Pradesh is that where you guys did you go into China from there like are you allowed into China from there or did you have to go through Burma or Myanmar yeah yes yeah. so what happened is uh, my Swiss friends peeled off and they went into to Myanmar or Burma and I was at that point where I was going to come home because I had been gone for a while and I was definitely suffering from some travel fatigue yeah. having been gone another four months at this point. I'm like, okay, this is enough. And so I'm sitting in this, this hotel after the Swiss and I had split up and I, I've just been calling the Swiss cause they're, they're like this collective of, of this couple. So, I mean, they have names and they're named Evo and Bridget, but I, I call them the Swiss and they okay. call me the Americans. So kind of <laughs> fun little names for each other. And so I remember talking to a buddy back in Colorado and he's like, Hey man, what are you, uh, what are you doing? Where are you at right now? I said, Hey, I'm, I'm in India. I'm getting ready to, to book a flight to come back. And he said, you know, that, uh, Thailand's right there. It's an, it's a short flight. It's probably like a, a $70 flight. You can hop right over there. It's like, I was there last year and I did this really fun bike tour and I think you should check it out. Oh, and beware of what's called uh, food suicide. It's like, what is that? He's like, just, you'll know when you get there. Yeah. So the street food in Thailand, like, so good. you could eat yourself to death. Yeah. And so I think people think that when you're in India, it's all the most amazing curries and naans and stuff like that. And that stuff exists in the cities. But when you're traveling these rural villages in the mountains, it's basic, right? It's, it's rice and beans and, and, and roti or chapati, which is mm-hmm. kind of like their local flatbread. And that's it. And then you get to Thailand and their street food is unreal. It's undescribable, right? So people think like, oh yeah, I've had pad thai. Like nobody eats pad thai. That's that's for tourists. There's these dishes that I can't pronounce. I've never known uh-huh. how to say it or I've never seen it before, but it's it's amazing. And so you can definitely go nuts on their food. So I hopped over to Thailand. So where did you where did you fly to? Into Chiang Mai or into Bangkok or uh, Chiang Mai. Chiang Mai, yeah. Did you do the Mae Hong San Loop then? Or? Did, yeah. It's amazing, isn't it? It's amazing. Yeah, I did yeah. it in 2018. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I was there, I think, the year before you. I think it was 2017 that I actually made it over there. Oh, and it was incredible. But I also found out 
how not only how perfect their roads are, there's not, it seemed like there wasn't a speck of gravel or They're so them. good. <laughs> so good. And my very heavy, surly mountain bike with mountain bike tires on it was not the right uh, bike. Yeah. Their, their roads, some of them are just their walls. Mm-hmm. So you would just grind your way to the top of this 18 or 20% grade hill, top out and plunge down the other side. Yeah. You, I, and I mean, you my, my thing of it was like, you know, because it was hairpin turns. And yeah. I mean, you're on the left side of the road because uh, the traffic's opposite of North America. Yeah, yeah. But you'd come to this hairpin turn and over about a 50 meter spot, like you're going up like four or five times the height of your body, you know, like, and it's yeah. 30, 35 degrees. So you'd have to cross the road to the other side and then kind of take a big long way around because yeah. my God, it was impossible. And I was on a, I was on a bike carrying almost nothing. I had a, I had my bike Friday folding bike and oh, it wow, was okay. so hard, but the gearing on that was actually pretty good. It's like a mountain bike gearing. So it was, you know real fun but tough work yeah. tough tough rides yeah. so so you know about the street food oh yeah and just everything that's incredible <clears throat> in thailand yeah well i lived in malaysia seven years so um and i lived within 30 kilometers of the border for three of those years so we spent a lot okay. of time going to southern thailand for party nights and just to get good food yeah how, how do you deal with the heat you just get used to it. Uh, I did a lot of road biking there, so I got used to, you know, daily rides with friends in 35 degree temperature. It was just, yeah, yeah, you get used to it. Wow. See, that's, that's the thing. Like I just living in Colorado, high outline, yeah. coming out of the Himalayas. Like this was great. And I thought, yeah, I should, I'll go to Thailand. This sounds amazing. He was, he was painting a pretty amazing picture. This would have been, I think, April. And I didn't realize that that was a pretty hot month. And yeah, it's not quite summer, but it's the end of the monsoon season. So it's really humid. I think, you know, it'd be, it'd be quite humid. Yeah. And I remember I would start at 6am every day and I'd ride until like 10 and then just be absolutely just crushed. There was one time that I simply remember I leaned my bike against a store to go inside and, and get, uh, I don't know, some, something cold to drink, probably a orange Fanta or something like that. And I came back. And the grips on my bars had started to basically dissolve and melt because they just got so, so hot. It's like asphalt it's roads that you sink into. <laughs> yeah, like what am I doing here? Like this, yeah. I am not cut out for this. So it was interesting because then the Swiss had come through after after riding through through Myanmar and they arrived in Chiang Mai and they were they were pretty blown out and tired too because I think the roads and just the traveling through Myanmar is is, yeah. is not quite as easy as it is in Thailand. Yeah, it's and you're you're continuation you have to stay in certain hotels, you're only allowed yep. out during the day, like you only have so many days for your visa, like it, there's yep. a lot of strange rules which yeah. Yeah. And they got through and they hung out in Thailand. I probably spent a month in Thailand and it was, it was incredible. Nice. It was a really good reset. And I remember they came through and it was good to see them because we had been kind of apart for a month. And, you know, when you travel with somebody, if you connect, you start to really connect because you have all those hours together. Yeah. And, and I remember towards the end of the trip, I was like, getting kind of antsy. And, and I'm once again thinking like, I, I think I'm going to go home. I think I've had enough traveling. And so they, Evo, the other uh, husband, he's like, Hey, what are you doing next week? And I'm telling him like, Hey, I think I've had, enough. and you're like, not quite You're about what? Nine, 10 months into this now at this point. Yeah. 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 And he asks me, he's like, Hey, what are you doing next week? I was like, I've heard this pitch before. So like, <laughs> I'm thinking, he's like, we're going to head down to the Chinese visa in Chiang Mai and get a visa and go into Eastern Tibet. Do you want to come? 
It's like, oh man, that's that You're like you guys are Swiss. Nobody arrests the Swiss. Americans, they love to arrest us. <laughs> well, the funny thing is, so this would have been 2017. I think when I went into to the to get a visa, they gave me, I think, uh, a two-year visa without even flinching. Oh wow, nice. Two-year multi-entry, and the Swiss, I think, got one month. Yeah, and they have to go extend it, and they can get extended. Yeah. Yeah. So I remember a month into it, so we did a, we did three months on the Tibetan plateau, and I remember like I think a month in, right towards the end of the first month, they had to take a bus down off the plateau mm. to some visa office to get it extended, and then take another bus back up. Which, yeah. It was crazy because I thought you know, the, the, they're Swiss, right? They're they're non-confrontational with every country. Like they're mm-hmm. they they don't have a side, whereas Americans definitely have a side. But this would have been 2017, so I don't know. Maybe China relations were better with the U.S. because Must have been. it was. It I've was heard I've problem. heard it's very random though too. Like a lot of times it's just you know yeah, like you said, the relations at that time might have been good, and it just could be the officer that processed your passport and visa and was like, oh yeah. I like this guy's name, you know, yeah, two years, yeah, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was incredible. How was it going from, uh, from, you know, Thailand where it's just everywhere you go, service is amazing. The food is uh-huh. amazing and everything. And all of a sudden you're in Tibet up in the, well, in the plateau, um, yeah. you know, small villages. Uh, I'm guessing it's probably similar to central Asia, yak butter and things like that. I don't know. You tell me. You're you're spot on. Yeah, spot on. So I was in the Amdo and Kham regions of eastern Tibet. So I wasn't in what's known as the Tibet Autonomous yeah. Region because that, as you probably know, is a lot like going into Bhutan. So mm-hmm. there's a $200 or so daily tourist visa. And, of course, you have to be escorted by a Chinese tour guide who will show you everything that they want you to see and, of course, nothing else. Mm-hmm. So we didn't go and mess with that. We were in eastern Tibet, which is outside of the autonomous region. And, yeah, it was back like being in the Himalayas in, in India or in Nepal or in, say, Bolivia. So it was, it was small, remote, rural villages, curious people who had never seen one, let alone three people on a bike ever. And it was just some of the kindest people that we had met very strong Buddhist culture there. So got invited to, to a lot of homes, a lot of homestays, people constantly wanted to sit and have tea with us. So it was, it was probably my favorite place to go. Oh yeah. It was, wow. in, it was interesting though, because China is developing a lot of roads up there. So things yeah. that were on open street maps on your, on your phone app, that look like a small little squiggly line, you'd get to them in some places it would be like a five or six lane highway with toll booths. Mm-hmm. Like, wow, that wasn't here last week. <laughs> and like, why do you need that? Like, right. Exactly. It's and just, it's just, just the, I think it's just the way their country works is it's like, well, if, if there's 10,000 people building this road, that means 10,000 people are getting paid and sure. you know, it's just the money. It's just a, it's just a way to push the economy to make it never lose pace. Right. Yeah. Look at the empty cities, right? Empty cities. So many. I would call it almost like pop-up cities. You could Mm -hmm. just see like there's all these new structures. We stayed in so many hotels that you could you could actually smell the drying plaster on the walls and the floors. This this was not here last month. And yeah, to your point, they were empty. There was nobody there. It was unbelievable. Mm -hmm. But they were just popping up all over the country. Yeah, I've heard it's not uncommon for, you know, people to be keep getting pushed to buy another apartment, buy another apartment, like mortgages are it's just dirt cheap because 
they got to show that it's sold and it's owned by somebody so they can build a new building. And <laughs> yeah, just, just creating almost like it's artificial demand. Yeah. Yeah. Really makes you worry though. Cause like if that collapses, I think like any, col- <laughs> for, like, I don't know, I'm not a finance guy. I don't know who is, but uh, you know, I, I imagine a financial collapse complete in China would have worldwide ramifications that there, there'd be a few stone ripples in that pond for sure. <laughs> yeah. I think uh, a lot of people definitely do. A lot of countries obviously do business with China, so yeah, they, it would it would be it'd be consequential. Mm-hmm. So you spent three months up there, and then um, did is that when you? I, I'm guessing if you guys came out into Kazakhstan or Kyrgyzstan or wherever you went. Kyrgyzstan was was part of a a subsequent trip. Oh, okay. So, so we had found our. So we we had all at this point. This would have been a year or so after this whole trip had had subsided, and we had gotten back together because they had gone back to school, back to teaching. I was trying to, again, plug back into what I wanted to do for a career. And I was, I was doing some odd jobs. I wasn't quite back in, in corporate America at the time, but I had kind of plugged back in and was doing some things. And they reached out because, again, we had formed a, a pretty solid bond. And they said, hey, we've got uh, the summer off because we're teachers in Switzerland and we want to take a trip. What do you think about Kyrgyzstan? Like, no. Kyrgyzstan, I don't know much about it. And so we started talking about it. And this was before the Silk Road mountain race mm-hmm. was uh, had, had gone. Oh, okay. Yeah. And so it was the same year, but we had gotten there before the race went off. And so they had a route already kind of published. And so we had the opportunity to, to ride most of that route. And uh-huh. that was amazing. So I know a lot of people love ultra bike packing races. I think that's cool. It just hasn't ever really appealed to me. Okay. And the reason is, is that, I don't know, one, I'm, I'm bad with no sleep. So I like to sleep. That's important to me. And, and, and I've done dozens of mountain bike races, cyclocross races, but there are two hours, four hours, five hours. Yeah. And something about riding through the night. I don't know. I, with, with bike it's pretty packing, amazing. Is it really? Yeah. It's one of my favorite. <laughs> I mean, it's the hardest it's hard. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's funny. One of my listeners sent me recently an article talking about, like, why that two hour to four, two to six in the morning or two to four in the morning is really hard on the body. And maybe it was two to sure. six, two a.m. to six a.m. And, uh, you know, because we're conditions as animals is that's your sleep time so you can survive. And For sure. um, but I love it. Like, I mean, that's that's it gets hard at that time. But I, I love riding in the dark and just like absorbing the quietness of Earth, you know, because it's one of the few times where things are sleeping, you know, so, um, maybe not everywhere in the world, not in China or <laughs> India, maybe <laughs> I can totally get down for that. But I, I guess I guess my own view is that if I'm going to fly 46 hours around the world, I want to see what you're right. I want to see it. like. <clears throat> The, the mountain passes are amazing, yeah. the culture, the people, the connections you make. I can't imagine just tucking my chin for 20 hours a day, riding over these iconic mountain passes and not really seeing them there, and not meeting the people in these villages. There's an that, easy, that easy, easy answer to that, Jerry. What is it? So if you're going to, let's say it's going to take you 10 days to ride that. Yeah. You give yourself 30 days and you first ride it in reverse for 20 days and then you I race like it that. the other direction. That's... <laughs> I never thought of it. Have you done that? No, but it's, <laughs> I've never had that much time. <laughs> no, yeah. I look, I, I hope to go do the Silk Road at some point too. Um, it's incredible. And, and it works out quite well time-wise because I forget when it is, but it's in August or something. It, it would land when I have summer holidays and stuff. So it's actually quite perfect. Yeah. 
Yeah, it, uh, it's, it's amazing. So people, of course, are incredible. The culture, it's, it's definitely not known for their food. I mean, there's lots of, lots of I think, yak meat there mm-hmm. and just basic noodles. So there's that. But there's, there's these canyons and mountain passes that you can ride for days and feel like you've gotten nowhere. There's these just endless canyons that just go on forever. And it's absolutely amazing. And there's, mm. there's river crossings and there's hike bikes. Yeah, it's, it's definitely one of, it's the country that I've probably have yeah. felt the most out there. Okay. Like if, if I, if I stopped riding, if I had a heart attack and died there or something happened to me, probably no one's going to find me just yeah. because it's like Everest. It's just, <laughs> yeah. It's just like, except Everest gets traffic. Like this doesn't right. have any traffic. Yeah. Yeah. So if, if something happened, like, that's it. Like, there's no one going to see you out there. No one's going to save you because you're you're so far out. It's yeah. incredible. Well, luckily you were there right before the race, so somebody might have found you. You know, they'd be like, "Hey, it looks like there's a dead American over there somewhere." Like, <laughs> right, right, right. There's a shiny green bicycle. Where, where'd this guy go? <laughs> um, yeah. How did you pack? Like, what? How did you? I, I'm assuming you have to pack differently for this. Um, you know, you're so far out there. Things like first aid kits, and you know, they've yeah. got to be a little bit more complete. Um, yeah. What kind of yep. things did you take into consideration heading into this uh, this terrain and atmosphere? Yeah, like I didn't carry a tourniquet or an IV bag or like stuff like that. Like I carried basic stuff. So you can a lot of times make a splint with stuff. So sure. you carry tape, you carry an ace wrap, you'd carry different disinfectants, Advils, but I didn't I didn't have like an ex, a super extensive medical kit like the way someone would be who's coming to rescue you from an ambulance. Right. Yeah, so, yeah. um, I, I was, I, I learned this, this, I, this, this concept years ago from a friend, like don't do anything that will cause you to end your trip. Meaning. So like, right. don't, don't ride like a dumbass, Right. So I have a background in mountain bike racing. So I, I feel like I'm a pretty good bike handler. Mm-hmm. And so I would scare my Swiss friends a fair bit. And they, they always would say, Hey, take care. There's no doctors out here but it's all relative, right? Right. The the things that someone who's never mountain biked before might seem a little sketchy things that someone who is experienced mountain biker, eh, it's, it's a little bit more, more pedestrian. Yeah. So I didn't really act that much differently than when I was in China or, or India or Nepal, but we did have to carry significantly more food. So we would carry five days worth of food. Yeah. How was, um, how is the communication up there? I mean, I, I know it's, I speak Russian, so definitely that's not an issue for a lot of people. Uh, but I'm assuming you don't speak Russian. Uh, My brother does. Oh, so close. Nice, nice. So association? Or Kyrgyz, no, probably not so much, right? So. Yeah, no, not. Just no, body language, back to the basics. Yeah, it's uh, between China and Kyrgyzstan were two of the most, I think, um, language isolated countries I've ever been in. So people in Nepal spoke a little bit of English. People in India definitely spoke a little bit of English. Even in Africa and for sure Western Europe. But Kyrgyzstan and China was it was basically like isolation. It was incarceration. You just there was nothing. Not even even the things that I thought were pretty common hand gestures weren't. It was just different. But at the same time everyone was curious. And everyone was kind and mm-hmm. everyone was helpful. I mean, people, you know, people who grew up in the eighties and think about the cold war with Russia and it's going to be dangerous over there. And again, it, 
things may have happened, but it wasn't my experience. Yeah, yeah. Like everyone was, was generous and nice. And you'd meet a lot of people in remote ver- villages. You meet a lot of people who uh, were more migratory and with their, with their flocks and their campsites and everyone was helpful. So if there's ever a time where I didn't have water or if I didn't have food and that never really happened, but if there was people were around at some point and, and would have been helpful. Mm. And there was, there was one time, that we came over this hike a bike and ended up in this valley. And these, these, these people who were, I, I guess they were just kind of more migratory groups and they came over and, you know, a couple of them had like weird clubs and spears and it kind of was kind of scared the shit out of me. But I think they, I don't know, maybe they just thought that we had come over this pass into their valley and were, I don't know, trying to, steal some of their bounty or their cattle or something like that. Unless yeah. they realized we were just a couple of Western travelers, you know, everything was hand smiles and handshakes and gave us some, some old dried meats and <laughs> went about their day, but never really had any, any issues. Yeah. I interviewed a guy who was up in Afghanistan, like up in the, uh, and you know, he's like tribal people are carrying AK 47s. The first few times you see them, it's kind of freaky. And then you're just like, well, wow, they just got their guns, you know? <laughs> yeah. I, I haven't been to Afghanistan. Pakistan is for sure on my list. Uh, but when I was in Israel, I was up along the border of Syria and Lebanon and it's not uncommon to see armored up Humvees rolling mm-hmm. through the streets Obviously, everyone around there, for his military perspective, is shouldering uh, an assault rifle or a machine gun. And I remember thinking it was just the craziest thing. Like, I have never seen a machine gun, and now I've never seen so many in my life. You know, it's like seeing that yeah. bald eagle in Alaska. It's like, wow, that crazy. Look at that. I'm like, oh, yeah, it's just some guy carrying a machine gun. Like, it's not a big deal. And people always ask me, like, hey, were you ever scared up in Israel? because of the contentious border wall there with Syria and with Lebanon. And actually I wasn't, I mean, there's because nobody else was probably. Yeah. And seeing a guy with a machine gun is like you seeing a guy with a briefcase going to work. Yeah. it, yeah. it, It just was. And I just, I remember one time that I had put this post on the Facebook group, bike packing Israel. And it's just a message board. Right. And so I said, Hey, my name is Jerry. I'm going to be up in the Golan Heights near the Lebanon border, uh, looking for a place to camp because you, you can't camp in a, in a military zone. And so like looking to connect with people or things not to see or things not to be missed. And so I walk into this little small village and the guy behind the counter was walking in to get some, some water. He looks at me, kind of cocks his head sideways and he says, Hey, are you Jerry? And I'm thinking, What? Like, how did you know that? Probably like, oh, Mossad. Yes. <laughs> Good one. And he said, yeah, I saw your post on, on the bike pack in Israel website. He's like, do you need a place to sleep tonight? I said, actually I do. I said, there's no place at camp. He says, hold on. He goes into his pocket, pulls out his mobile phone, calls somebody, hands it to me. And it's like, Hey, this is a uh, so-and-so. I heard you need a place to sleep. I said, yeah, where can I camp? He said, no, no, no. Give me your phone number. I'm going to drop a pin on your phone, follow it to my house. My neighbor will let you in. I'm not home. I'll be back in 10 days. Stay as long as you want. And if you're there when I get back, great. Otherwise, safe travels. Oh, and by the way, do you need the Wi-Fi password? Nice. I was like, this is incredible. 
And so, you know, the, the more you travel, the more you realize that honestly, people are just people. They're mm-hmm. curious, they're yep. empathetic, they want to help. Governments are crazy. People, I think, for the most part, are just good. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I was. Uh, I lived in South Korea in two thousand eight and nine, and very similar at that time. That's when like South Korea started and uh, North Korea started testing some ballistic missiles. And man, every news thing in the world at that time was saying like, "There's gonna be a war," blah blah blah. And like, you ask any South Koreans, they're like, "Ah, just the North. You know, they just do their thing, and we're good. Let's still we're gonna go to the bar tonight. We're gonna get drunk. <laughs> we're gonna party. Yeah, it's life. Let's carry on. You know." That was it. Yeah. And it's just like that perspective, right? Like this just becomes your normal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I can't even imagine that. But then if you're there, I mean, you probably experienced it too. You probably started to relax and thought like, yeah. I think, yeah. My, I talked to my family. They'd be like, oh my God, you gotta be careful. I'm like, no, nah, it's no big deal. Like nobody cares. <laughs> I'm like, and I'm in Seoul. So like if bombs fl- start dropping, going to be where i live that that place is getting hit first right? yeah like it's that's, like that's 50 miles from the border 30 miles from it's not far you know like yeah it, it's an easy hit yeah yeah <clears throat> yeah that, that's how i felt about israel yeah exactly everything's within a, a range of something you know of one country or another yeah for sure and people have have bomb shelters in their homes and their apartments oh do they yeah yeah like I, I have friends over there who have said like if uh if there's ever because they have these uh these almost like an air raid siren that goes throughout the city and i was told that if they hear that siren to get to their bomb shelter in the uh. house and and pulling into say like parking garages you have to you have to pop your trunk and i'm thinking like why would you pop your trunk to make they, sure there's not a bomb they want to check here yeah yeah yeah, yeah and, and i've heard it's quite cus- cursory to have the mirrors checking under the cars pop your trunk yeah. check your car yeah yeah like like in major cities and i thought like this is crazy but it's not. It just becomes your new normal. It's like it's it's just your new baseline. Yeah, that's wild. And you don't think about it anymore. How long did you spend in Israel? Um, I don't know. Maybe probably a month. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So not not a ton of time, but enough to get a good feel. So I was in the north in the Golan Heights. Made my way down uh, to the Negev Desert on the Israel bike trail. Uh, I have a had a buddy who I met over in Nepal. And one of those just always say yes moments where you're yeah. like, hey, if you ever find yourself with some time on your hands, come to Israel and you can stay with my, with my family and I. And I remember I came back from traveling after this whole big trip was done. And I thought, you know what? I'm kind of curious about this Middle East stuff. I'm seeing all these news stories on TV and mm-hmm. reading about them in, in magazines. And I thought, you know, I'm going to reach out to you all. And at the time, I think Syria was, was definitely, they started doing some pretty bad stuff. Yeah. And so the United States had launched this targeted missile strike into Syria. And it was pretty much as the crow flies, like you say, with Seoul, like 30 miles away, like 50K. And it's just, it's right there. Yeah. And I remember waking up one morning in this, in this hotel room, like right where the border of Syria is. Like you can look out and go out and touch the border wall. It was that close. And my phone was going off and parents, friends were saying, hey, where are you? We know you're in Israel. Tell me you're nowhere near Syria. I was like, actually, I'm, I'm looking at the border wall. It's right here. Oh, wow. And, and they're like, holy shit. Did you hear anything last night? We just, the U.S. launched this big missile strike into Damascus. I'm like, nope, didn't see anything. Walk out, go to the coffee shop, get breakfast next morning. People are going to work and like, yeah, no big deal. 
Just carrying their machine guns like their briefcases. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just, it's just, yeah, whatever. Yeah, I've, I've been to, uh, you know, same, um, you know, you're talking about the kindness of people. I, I've been to Iran three times. Um, ah. And, you know, it's, it's such a privilege. Well, I'm so lucky because my wife, you know, we were engaged and stuff. And I was able to get visas through her family as like, it, it was really hard. Um, I think the first time my mother-in-law told the foreign affairs office or whatever that I was coming to propose. Uh, in fact, I was just coming to travel and see my girlfriend and meet her family. Yeah. And then the second time is coming. They're like, why is he coming to Iran again and not married? He was, the last time he came, he was proposing. And she, and she said, well, this time he's coming to, to meet other members of the family and see if we're a good match. And, uh, and they're like, okay. And they approved it. And uh, I guess, cause it makes sense that men would have to determine if the whole family's good to marry a woman or something. Sure. And, um, and then the third time, they're like, how come he's not married yet? She's like, actually, this time they're coming for the wedding. So, um, yeah, so I've been three times. It's fantastic. The people are so friendly, you know, and I've heard nothing but great stories from cyclists that have traveled there. Because, I mean, knowing the people the way I know them, it's uh, it's unreal, you know. And it's and it's not just Iran and just Turkey. I'm sure it's the same in Israel, the same in so many countries. Yeah. Sorry, my I, dog I is going was, crazy around me. <laughs> I've, uh, I, I've talked to some other friends, my Swiss friends who've been to Iran, and they said it was almost over-the-top kindness, as if they were there for a month and never paid for a meal or a night stay the entire time, to the point where they actually had to start rejecting people because they just needed some space because people were so wanting to help. They were so curious. And it's like sometimes you just – you don't want to talk. You just kind of want to go to your room and just kind of be quiet. And they said it was just, it was over the top. Nice. Yeah. I think that's, I mean, it's not a bad problem to have, but yeah. uh, <laughs> sometimes, no, you know, like you said, if, if you're at somebody's house, you can't just slink off and go sleep. You know, you're, you're, yeah. you're up as long as they're up or until you really show that you're tired by yawning too much or right. you're starting to fall asleep and like, Oh, maybe you want to sleep. And you're like, Yes. <laughs> yeah. When I was in Morocco, similar, right? Yeah. So, but people would have dinner. This traditional dish is called tagine, and it takes yeah. a couple hours to make. And they would have dinner. It's like, hey, will you have dinner with us tonight? And first off, I was like, yeah, of course. It sounds amazing. I didn't know dinner was took until like 10 o'clock. Yeah. You're sitting there on the couch, and like the grandfather is watching television, and you're trying to watch television in a not English language. And, Pretty soon, like, oh, you're, you're hungry, right? I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm hungry. And I'm tired. I'm almost more tired than I'm hungry at this point. Yeah. And pretty soon, they come out with this huge feast of food at like 10 o'clock. Yeah. Like, Iran's right. the same. Yeah. Like, okay, let's, let's <clears throat> do this. Yeah. It's so late. And like, my parents came, my brother came for my wedding. And, yeah. And, you know, like, lunch wouldn't happen until two, three in the afternoon. And then we would sit down and, you know, by, there were never any, like, it was funny. Like, culturally, it was really funny because they, they expected there would be plans all the time to do things, but it would always be last seconds. Like, oh, maybe we take them here. Maybe we take them. They'd be arguing about where <laughs> they take us. But that wouldn't be until after lunch. And then they had a nap and everybody just falls asleep around you. And you're sitting there on a couch and looking and people are passed out everywhere. And, yeah, yeah. and you're like, oh, uh, my dad's like, what's going on? I'm like, they're napping. <laughs> They'll be okay. They'll wake up in an hour or so. And he's like, okay. <laughs> Just there. That's crazy. Yeah, it's just it was amazing though. Like, I mean, I, I was used to it because I've traveled a lot, but my parents hadn't, you know. And uh, yeah, 
Were were they of traditional kind of Western mindset? Like yeah. Iran is crazy dangerous. All of the stuff that's happening, like we're not going anywhere near that place. Um, I thought I think they were worried about that, maybe to some degree at first, but um, you know, decided to risk it for us. <laughs> so now that you're you're married to a local, does, yeah. did she have to forfeit her her passport? No, no. Um, she actually, when I met her, she had already applied for her permanent residency in Canada, which is kind of like a green card in the U.S. Okay. Um, so she had been accepted. I think we were on her like our second date or something when she got her acceptance. So, you know, I always try to make it clear and she's always tells people, it's like, no, no, I didn't come be, you know, Chris didn't <laughs> import me. Like I was right, going right. regardless, you know, I just happened to meet him and I wasn't going to date anybody from any other country. And I happened to, we met each other at the right time because she was like focused on Canada, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, but she didn't have to relinquish her passport. No, and Jasmine has, um, no, she is just a Canadian right now, but we'll probably get her an Iranian one at some point, but okay. we'd like, we'd rather wait to see if this government can get overthrown and, uh, you know, mm. get her a passport with a nice demo- demo- democratic country, hopefully. But <clears throat> Yeah, I, I, don't know how much, uh, I don't know how much research or reading you've done with uh with iran and just some of the stories about stuff that's taking place oh, that's with insane. regime changes there like yeah. i've the more interested i've got into traveling to iran the more i've started reading okay. and podcasts and it's it's fascinating the things that that american governments have done to sort of put different people in power and and how iran used to be this this playground of of europe oh and people yeah go there and see pictures party. afghanistan too you know same Right. Yeah. And then with you know, obviously the current state of both those countries, like that just isn't the thing right now. Yeah, it was a big mistake, right? They, they thought they were helping this religious group take power yeah. in the country and that would allow them free access to continued cheap oil. It was America's yeah, mistake. Of course. And, uh, yeah. You know, America has a tendency to try to create demo- democracy and regime change that will benefit them. But, I, you of know, course. we. There's a few countries in the Middle East that are pretty messed up after uh, the U.S. help. Help. So yeah, <laughs> right. The U.S. helping hand. <laughs> can you? Uh, can you? Can you travel back there easily now? I don't think we plan to go at all. We're gonna go to Turkey this summer, and her family's gonna okay. come there and meet us. Um, okay. Just because my my wife has been on the forefront of some of the protests and stuff, it's not necessarily worth the risk of going there. Yeah. And if they have intelligence and looking at videos and stuff that are posted, yeah, yeah that's, never know, yeah. right? I mean, she's not not any serious anything, but you never know what could happen. Yeah, and no need to to test that. Yeah, let's talk about um, warm showers a bit. I know we're we're running in here an hour and forty minutes or so, but um, when did you get involved with warm showers? I know you. Um, you know, you're, you're, are you on the board of directors? Is that correct? I am. Yeah. yeah. I, uh, I'm the guy who builds a bunch of spreadsheets and Excel and does all the, the financial reporting. Okay. How did you get involved with that? Was that just them kind of shouting out and saying, Hey, we're looking for people or like, yeah, it's, a, it's exactly what it was. They had a couple openings, uh, for their finance person and also for their board. And I threw them a resume and we talked and they thought, yeah, uh, we think you'd be great on the board, but we think you'd be with your background probably better served for us in this finance position. You want that? And I said, yeah, let's do that. Okay, so you're 
on the board of directors, but also the finance dude person. Yes. Making that things. is what's on my business card. The finance dude is exactly yeah. right. I, I yes, hope you remake those cards to reflect that accurately. <laughs> I've been for a couple, I think probably, I think this is my third year now, I think. Is it three uh, years? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It, it goes fast, but we've, we've made a lot of changes over the, over the past couple of years. And it's, it's been a lot of fun because I get to be on the other side of things. So when I'm traveling, People are allowing me to stay in their home and they're treating me mm-hmm. to dinner and everything else. And now where I live in Breckenridge as a, as a host, not just as a, as a board member or a finance dude, I get to host people because in Breckenridge, I'm at the, the center of say the Colorado trail. Yeah. The, the great divide rolls through here and also the trans America, all three. Roll oh, wow. Cool. And so I get to host people pretty much seven days a week. If I chose to, yeah. I'm not, peopled out which of course it happens at a certain yeah. point even an extrovert gets peopled out yeah exactly and yeah it's it's incredible and so warm showers has has been a, a ton of fun and aside from me say coaching skiing in the winter time and guiding some bike tours in the summer writing a book through the off season and then i get to do some some brain work which is which is finance stuff which kind of mm-hmm. takes me back to more of my my business career so it's, it's a nice blend. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. Have you, have you used warm showers a lot when traveling, Nick, or is it just kind of a sporadic? You know, it's, it's, it's interesting. I've only stayed with one warm showers host in all of my travels. No shit. Everything else, everything else has just been more organic. Yeah. Right? So I was actually in Turkey, and I forgot some really tiny village, and the storm was coming. It was going to snow that night, like a really nasty, heavy spring wet snow that'll brent, that'll, that'll, break uh, tents, poles. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking, I really don't want to deal with this tonight. So I'm looking around, trying to find a homestay, trying to find a hotel in this small village where there isn't one. And some guy comes up to me. It's like, hey, I have a place to stay. Have you heard of warm showers? And this is before <laughs> I was ever a warm showers board member or finance. Right, student. right. And I was like, yeah, I have, because I think they started in Colorado, and that's where I live. And so he shows me to this room, and it's 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 great. It's like this this kind of oasis in this impending doom of storm. And that was really my first and only time using warm showers because again, everything else is it's not so planned out where I'm going to be. And I'm mostly traveling in more rural areas hmm. where there just aren't places like that. Yeah. 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 I've hosted quite a few times, um, mostly in Malaysia, um, here, Canada, not so much. Well, because COVID happened, that kind of really put a damper on things. Sure. And, you know, there's actually a lot of hosts here. So I, I searched myself. I'm pretty far down in those pages. So that's just kind of the way it works. <laughs> um, but I live in a pretty nice area. So I, I occasionally get messages from people. But more more of it, like you said, is organic. So and I think that's what you're kind of hitting at, right? Is like you you said that people don't need warm showers because it's happened organically, right? <laughs> I was joking. <laughs> now what I said, it's uh, it, it's cool, right? So we're it is awesome. These, yeah. these planning sessions, and we're talking about how can we get more hosts out there mm-hmm. because I think it's it's such an amazing experience. A lot of times for people who are new to traveling, and maybe the idea of going hotel to hotel is is expensive. Mm-hmm. or the idea of carrying all your camping gear is just, it's outside of the wheelhouse. They're not comfortable with camping, wild camping. Like, cool, maybe I can just stay with someone who's local. Yeah. But then that in itself kind of has this own sort of stigma, like, ah, I'm going to go sleep in some person's house who I've never met. And so we're, we're trying to make this as approachable and friendly as everyone. Yeah. And so, you know, the more, I, more views that people have, 
they realize like, hey, this is a really cool experience. I remember the first time uh, we met uh, and it was warm showers. So there was two cyclists from Spain and they were coming up through Indonesia and coming through Kuala Lumpur and they needed to fix up their bikes and apply for visas. And they asked if they could stay like a week or five days or something. And I told my wife, I had this guest request and she's like, excuse me. Like, sorry, we were dating at the time. She's like, you just want to let two random people stay in our house for yeah. like half a week or whatever. I was like, yeah, basically. <laughs> and she's like, do we, but we have jewelry here and we have this and that. Yeah. Like, what do we do? I said, well, you could lock it in a suitcase if you're really uncomfortable and like really is something you're worried about. Yeah. We have suitcases in our closets and stuff. Like just stick it in a bag and a bag and a bag and lock the suitcase. Like, yeah. You know, if, if it's that, that much, you know, and she loved the experience man yeah like we we had such a good time with that couple like we still planned if we ever go to spain which maybe this summer maybe the year after uh we're gonna meet up with them you know like they uh just amazing couple and we had such a great time and took them to all our favorite restaurants and you know they cooked for us which is you know such a warm showers thing to do is like cook a meal from your culture so yeah they they cooked some food for us and then we made some food for them and like it was you know it's it is what i mean to anybody listening that knows what warm showers they'll be like yeah okay you're not talking about anything special it's just what it is it's that's that is what is so great about warm showers you know um so yeah we've but I, I know what you mean there so my my wife you know the first couple times she was very very wary of having some random person stay in our house. But in the end, I think she, she's become much more accepting to the point where I'll be riding down the road. We're driving down the road. We see a guy on a bike on the side of the road, fixing it. Um, you know, it's a few hundred kilometers away. And I was like, Oh, if you make it through the area and you need a place to stay, let me know. And she's like, yeah, just, you know, just send us a message. Like she's totally on board. <laughs> so it's, it's gotten pretty yeah. cool. <clears throat> yeah. yeah. There, there was a time when, uh, so I live in Breckenridge and nine miles to the North is this small town called Frisco. And before my partner and I started living together, she was living in Frisco. I was living in Breckenridge and I'd had this request from two girls, probably in their late twenties, early thirties who were coming in from the Colorado trail. And so there was a, there's a bike path that connects Frisco to Breckenridge. And I remember Christy was driving down the street in uh in her car and she rolls down her window and she's like hey are you guys going to jerry's house like just out of the blue and they both kind of like what like actually we are but that was really strange that you totally just outed us just like that and so i was like cool i'll see you guys there in an hour when you guys get there and stuff and so we've uh we've hosted a bunch of people together and the same thing like she she loves being on the hosting end. I love it. And yeah. now that we have been to India together, we've stayed in people's homes. So mm-hmm. she sees the reciprocity of it. Exactly. Of sharing this really unique cultural experience. And there was a German couple who were retired probably late, mid to late 60s, who came by. And they stayed with us for a couple of nights. And before she moved in, she had she had an apartment in Frisco. And they were kind of in that same place that your people were. Like they wanted to stay a week mm-hmm. because they just needed a reset. Yeah. I was like, you should just stay here and give them your apartment for the week. She's like, really? I was like, yeah, it's going to be fine. And it totally was. And, and it was, we've yeah. been good. We've been good friends since then. Like they're down in Baja, Mexico right nice. now. And as they were traveling through Colorado, they were going on this route about, I don't know, 150 miles away to this, this town called Gunnison. And where their road would pick back up again. And I have a friend who lives down there. I was like, hey, uh, I've got two friends who are coming your way. 
uh, on bikes. Can they stay with you? I was like, yeah, sounds great. And so I just kept handing them off to other people along mm. the way. And they stayed with my friend Jason for like a couple of days, became great friends there. And, and it was their first time ever just taking in complete strangers. Yeah. And I don't know. I, I think it, it, it has this way of, of breaking down borders mm-hmm. and walls and these, these mental stigmas and stereotypes and fears. Like people, people are good for the most part. Like, yeah, yeah. there's, yeah, there's, there's crazy people in every country, but I think they're, they're part of the minimum. And it's there's a pretty, just, it's a pretty awesome community. Cause I remember even when I was on my trip up towards Yukon, I was, uh, I was riding on the Yellowhead highway, I think. And I met this Slovakian guy and he was like, yeah, well, tomorrow I'm staying at, or the day after I'm staying at a warm showers house in Smithers, BC. And he's like, yeah, you should come. I said, oh, I saw their name and stuff, but I, I, I never know where I'm going. Cause I was just pounding huge days on the bike. And so okay. I don't, didn't send out messages. He's like, oh no, just come. I'm sure they let you stay. <laughs> so I showed up with them and <laughs> they're like, yeah, yeah. Just pitch your tent up in the back. Yeah. It was COVID. Right. So they were like tenting. She just yeah. cooked up more food and fed us, and we had such a nice time. And and uh, because of my plans, like he stayed an extra day, but then we we met up for like a really remote section, and mm-hmm. um, yeah, so tested out their their recumbent bikes. I learned how to ride recumbent with those that, Whoa, that couple. Never and, done that. Um, it was relatively easy, I found, but the uh, the Slovakian guy never could get he couldn't get going. Mm-hmm. He just kept falling over, tipping over. Uh, yeah, and. Um, Fedor, he he has a name. He's not the Slovakian guy, you know. I'm not that kind of person. I would just throw a, a nationality at somebody. Yeah. <laughs> well played. <laughs> uh, yeah, Fedor was uh, he struggled, but I was like first shot. It was, it was fun. It was kind of cool. But um, yeah, so I got to ask you though. I I know you're on the board of directors and you're the finance guy. So what pushed Warm Showers uh, to start? You know making it a financial thing, um, you know, cause I, I think there was a lot Good of, question. a lot of negativity. Um, I hear yes. from people too, you know, and, and I'm sure you guys are aware of that. So I'm not throwing something random at you. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, and, and there was, there's some groups out and I've heard a lot of people say, I, I just quit it and blah, blah, blah. It was supposed to be free forever. And yeah, I realize that nothing can, you know, if you want something to keep growing, it can't be free forever. It's the same reason I, I, I fund Patreon and try to try to get a little bit of cash in to keep making the podcast better, right? It's kind of yeah. necessary. Um, yeah. <clears throat> how did that decision come about, I guess? And, you know, because I, I know it was probably a big one. It was a very big one, and it wasn't made overnight. Like it's, we, we did a lot of just research and surveying, and what it came down to is Warm Shower started as a spreadsheet a decade ago or yeah. so. And people just had like this spreadsheet and a list of names and they had a database. And that was, it was fine when you have a hundred, 500, a thousand different contacts, but we had grown to over a hundred thousand, you know, pushing 200,000 contacts. And a lot of our technology was built by volunteers and it was, it was good. It was functional, but volunteers don't stick around. Sometimes they don't always have the same standards of, let's say, website development and programming. Yeah. And when things would go down, you'd, you'd start to need someone, an IT person, to fix these things. A volunteer isn't always around because they're they're not on salary, so they're not yeah. obligated to. You know, we'd we'd get the occasional hacks like any website would, and we realized that for us to really be sustainable, the way something like say couch surfing is. I don't know how couch surfing, how well they're doing right now, but 
as a as sort of like a, a parallel like our, our website needs to be more robust. Like we, we've got people's names in there. We've got confidential information, addresses, mm-hmm. phone numbers. Like we need to have- And information better, of when they're traveling and when they're home. And- exactly, right? And so th- there needs to be better than just kind of a, a stitched together websites. Mm-hmm. And so we realize, okay, what does a website cost? Okay, wow, website costs a lot of money. Holy cow. And so how are we going to pay for this? Like, yeah, we do, uh, we do a bike giveaway every year. We raise X amount of dollars and that helps, but that's nowhere near scratch the service mm. about putting together a website. <clears throat> and then of course, everyone's going to phone apps. And so an app to develop is not cheap either. Yeah. And so we needed extra funding. So we thought, okay, how can we get funding and still make it reasonable? And I say reasonable and that's in sort of like a Western Europe, Canada, U.S. kind of standard, right? And so we propose doing a one-time for the lifetime of, of each user, 30 bucks. 30 bucks gets you access to our network forever. And I realize that if you're in a developing country, Honduras or something like that, like 30 bucks is a lot. Yeah. But for someone who's coming out of, say, Western Europe or Canada or the United States or Australia, New Zealand, like 30 bucks is less than one hotel room stay. Yeah. And so that's how we kind of made that, that justification. So is there and, a geolocation pricing type thing for different countries or not really? We're working on that. We okay. haven't quite gotten to that point yet. Yeah. We just kind of rolled this out. We're going to roll out a new, the new website that we've been developing for, I don't know, the last five months. That's going to roll out probably the next few weeks. So uh, the people that are grandfathered into still accessing the website for free, like yeah. myself, are they still yeah. going to have access to the new website or is that going to end? No, no, no. You're still in. Oh, you're, thank you're, God. <laughs> you're, you're, you're still grandfathered in. And then for people who want to download the app like the app is optional right yeah. so if you want because most people are using apps on their phone as opposed to say a a, a desktop interface yeah the it's browser definitely is slower if you're on your phone it's, and stuff yeah it's clunky for <clears throat> sure and messaging is way easier on an app and so i think we charge three or four bucks a month through all the app stores to be to use the app mm. and if you're traveling if you're on the road you can use it you can you can pay the four bucks once you stop traveling, you shut it off. You don't pay again. Yeah, that's true. So, yeah. so it, it seems like it's... Within, yeah, you're going to buy a SIM card when you're traveling. What's an extra few bucks and uh, have access to the simplified, yeah. fast version of what you might need, you know? And yeah. uh, in, looking at other, other apps, the, the pricing that we put in seems like it's in line with other, with other apps that people are paying. So we, didn't, we want it to be inclusive. We didn't mm-hmm. want to be gouging. We didn't want to say, well, it's 100 bucks a year, blah, blah, blah. Because, I mean, there are, there are plenty of other sites that do charge a recurring annual fee. We're one time. Mm-hmm. So that, that's hopefully tries to make it a little bit more approachable. I feel in some ways, though, like couchsurfing, it, out, it outgrew itself to the point where a lot of people using the service were abusing the service. Sure. You know, I'm hoping to not see that with warm showers. I mean, you, obviously, you can't stop growth. That's... That's, you know, right. part of the idea is to, to give this and make it accessible to everybody. But yeah, definitely in couch surfing, there was uh there were a lot of people that were really, it just felt like abusive or, you know, dudes and in what way I, I, I could pick a country. Um, well, I'm not going to pick a country, but dudes in country in a country that have on their profiles, they only accept girls, but they know so many people are coming through wow. that girls will inevitably 
fall into their laps and you know girls have had situations that have been quite creepy and whatnot and have oh, wow. and thus it leads to situations where they no longer stay with somebody who is of the opposite sex you know Whoa. um yeah yeah I've, I've heard a few stories from different girls you know waking up and a guy standing in their doorway actually it's happened with somebody you know through a warm shower situation too i believe um Gosh. But I haven't heard that. We, we but we I mean, have... things like that can happen. So I mean, like sure. I always say, you know, be safe. Um, if I was a female, or if my wife was traveling, I'd probably tell her stay with hosts that are girls or a couple. You yeah. know, just because yeah, sure. I want her to be careful. And they're you know, ladies in most cases are definitely the um, more at risk group. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, be, be as street smart as possible. But I haven't heard those stories. I know that we do have a trust and safety department, and I know I'm sure that couch surfing does as well. Uh, I don't. I don't think growth inherently is itself bad. I think sustainable growth is good. And so, you know, we view growth mm-hmm. as trying to get more hosts out there, and with more hosts, it creates more opportunities for people to have these these more organ- organic experiences in foreign countries. Yeah, I guess that's the key is um, to get the right amount of hosts too, right? If you have just travelers and people looking for places, but there's only X, a small amount of hosts, everybody's going to get burned out. And like you said, you need even your breaks and you're an extroverted type person. So yeah. by by getting more people involved, that might be the key. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And I feel like biking's different because nobody's going to show up at your house without a bike. And, you know, yeah, typically we're, we're explicit about that like this is this is a bike traveling network mm-hmm. it's not for people looking to on a road trip or hiking or hitchhiking looking to just not pay for a hotel room like this is these are bike travelers yeah yeah that's that's one thing i've always that was when i made like as i got more into bike travel around 2012 yeah. that's when i cleared like stepped away from couch surfing and started hosting a lot less with that and really focused mm-hmm. on warm showers because it meshed what's much more with my own uh interests you know yeah and again I, i've had nothing but good experiences with everyone i've hosted i posted people who are fresh out of high school fresh out of college people taking a break from their job in their 30s 40s 50s people who are retired in their 60s like every person i've met has been a good human yeah and so we try to show them a good experience as well yeah, every warm showers guest we've had, have, have, or I've had, or I've been with, has been awesome. Um, couple couch surfing ones have been nothing bad, but just different, you know, like not necessarily something I'd go, oh, that was an amazing experience. I'm so happy, you know, just but nothing did terrible. You, did you have a guy standing in your doorway when you were sleeping? As a no, I always <laughs> find that kind of comforting and like a safety. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, bad joke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it makes me feel safe. <laughs> I like when they cuddle. Um, you want to talk about your book? I know we didn't touch on it. I know you're writing yeah. one or you have written one. Is it done? I wrote or? a book. Okay. Yeah, I wrote a book. You it wrote a book. Out, you're an uh, author. Like, like like two months. I know it's a weird thing to say, right? 49 and an author. Seriously. Like, you know, some kids, they're, they're what I call them like, kind of like book nerds. My, my partner, Christy, she's a book nerd. That She used to sneak read when she was a kid. She'd stay up too late with a mm-hmm. flashlight and reading in the middle of the night I was never that kid. Like I, yeah. I played sports and I didn't, I didn't wake up one day and it's like, I want to write a book. It was, it was just this, this culmination of experiences and stories that kind of came to fruition. And if it was just a story about some white guy from Colorado riding his bike in his forties, like I personally, I don't think that's a very interesting story. I think it's kind of shallow, mm-hmm. not a lot of depth there. 
But then I started thinking back, like, okay, how do I, how did I get to this point, right? Like, oh, right. Rural Michigan, a lot of people can relate to that. Had this really strict regime, military, Korean War father. A lot of that uh, just sort of strictness made me sort of want to rebel. And what did I learn through corporate America, like that I didn't want to be in it? And then, wow, what was the big light switch, the big epiphany, like working with people at end of life and hospice and just this value of time? and how finite this is. Mm -hmm. And then that's how I got onto this bike tour. So there's lots of stories woven in there about growing up with my dad. I call him Big Jer, and I was Little Jer. And so there's those stories. There's stories about, wow, the nightmare of working in corporate America, the things you learn. And just, I don't know, if if you've ever worked in a a corporate job, like it's it's just – I've never heard of anyone say, God, I love this job. I'm going to write a book about my corporate America job. (laughs) It's so fulfilling and so gratifying, but it's just, we're kind of indoctrinated in this. Like, yeah, this is just what you do that you go to college, you follow this, this playbook and you get a job. The job sucks, but you know, it's going to suck and you're going to work your ass off and you're going to get a few more dollars. You get a promotion, you'll get a a few more dollars and you just kind of like keep ratcheting your way up until you're 65. Then you sort of cut loose and start living your best life. And running a hospice, you realize that you might not get that chance, right? Might not get there, yeah. Yeah, and so inevitably, most or all of our patients pass away, and most of them are 90, 95 years old. And while it's tragic, I can, in my mind, sort of make sense of it all by saying that, like, hey, they were 90, they lived a long life. I'd like to believe that they lived a really good and beautiful life. Yeah. But it wasn't until a good friend of mine passed the age of 45 from breast cancer that this light switch went on. It's like, shit, you know, tomorrow's not promised. So you need to start doing what you want now. Mm-hmm. And then again, as I mentioned earlier, like a couple of things went sideways in my life and I had this opportunity to go travel. And so there's definitely stories in the book about going through Chinese checkpoints and traveling along the Israel and Syria border and okay. just the people you meet along the way, the experiences like, yeah, I mean, there's, there's epic moments where you're six hour hike a bike over a mountain pass in, in India, but it's really more about those connections, that mm-hmm. perspective that you get from traveling slow by a bike. And that's really what the, what the story is about. It's just the value of time and, and how we <clears> choose to spend it. Cool. All right. I might have to pick up a copy and it's available through all the, the major sellers or. Yeah, it is. Uh, it's also available on my website. Okay. So for people who are in the, uh, the lower 48 of the U S you can go to my website at jerrycopac.com. Otherwise, yeah, all the other major sellers, but I'm trying to not give, uh, yeah, let's try to keep money. the money away from the the corporate, <laughs> yeah, the corporate machine yeah. if we can. Yeah, I, if I, you're I in the don't US. Think Amazon needs any more of my money. <clears throat> yeah, if you're in the lower forty eight, it makes it easy. You don't yeah, ship to Canada, huh? It's okay. Uh, it depends, man. I mean, you seem like a good guy. I, I make an exception for you. Oh, okay, good, good. All right, maybe I'll do that. Um, <laughs> actually, last thing I want to talk about is uh, you have recently, I believe it's recently, taken over the Bike Life podcast or or one of the several hosts how's it work there so i won't say taken over because okay. the bike life podcast was started by executive director her name is Taverly, and so she started the the podcast and has done a really great job with it yes and i've listened to quite role, a few episodes yeah and as her role begins to expand she just reached out to me and say hey, listen i've my my schedule my time is 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 becoming a little bit thin 
do you want to jump in and help out and host some of these, some of these podcasts? Oh, cool. And initially I think it was just going to be like one or two here and there. And now we're, we're essentially splitting them down the middle and we'll see if that, if that ratio changes awesome. based on her yeah. workload. And it's been a ton of fun. Like, as you know, sitting on this side of the mic, yeah. grilling people like me and yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's really cool sharing experiences. Yeah. It's, I've it's really enjoyed it. It's been a fun, I've been doing this four years and you know, it's, it's a constant learning process. Um, I've gotten better yeah. at doing interviews where I don't have to spend three, four hours scouring somebody's Instagram and life yeah. to, to try to come up with questions. Yeah. Um, so I find it's much more, it rolls better and it's easier. Um, you know, and it's always a challenge to, to control how much you talk when you're hosting, you know, because mm-hmm. it's very easy to go off on tangents and I still do occasionally, I guess, but, uh, you know, I kind of want to get the guests to talk more. And then, so it's a matter of getting them to uh, engage. Yeah. And I'm sure you're figuring that out. But I, I, one thing is bi- bi- bike life. Um, yeah. You guys podcasts tend to be quite short, right? So it's more of a, they are. yeah. Is that in, on purpose thing? You guys aim for that 30 minute it mark? Is. It is. Yeah. So you're right. We're in about that 30, 30 minute mark. And this was, this was Tavoli's creation. And her thought was it, it makes it more of a quick digest. You can listen to it on your way to work while you're making dinner. And yeah, obviously you can't get in as as deep as say, you know, you and I are yeah, in for an sure. hour and a half or two hour podcast, but you can get a, a pretty interesting story. And I think the the motivation of bike life is to encourage more people to essentially to get out there and mm-hmm. travel and look at the things that you can learn. So like we're not gonna go into a gear breakdown, like, you know, what's your take yeah. on the new XTR build kit? Oh, isn't it amazing? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. For the difference between like the price to, uh, to value ratio for that, it's like, yeah, you spent extra thousand dollars to save 30 grams. Like we don't talk about stuff. Like yeah. That. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's more about like, Hey, you are traveling through India or I, I had a, interviewed a guy's name was Kanisha. And he was the self-proclaimed mayor of his city in India, or the bike mayor of a city. And it's just hearing <laughs> a story about as, cause I've been through India three times and hearing talking to an Indian guy about traveling through India by bike. Like for me, it was a really fascinating and, and fulfilling interview. Yeah. And it's just, it's just been really cool because you know, I, you'll meet someone who's again, 25, who's doing their first bike tour to a couple who retire in their 70 and this is what they've been wanting to do their entire life. And they yeah. finally get that chance to do it, to go and ride from New York to California over like three months. And it's just cool to hear their, their excitement and just oozing yeah. with inspiration. So it's, it's been great. Well, I formally welcome you to the club of uh, bike touring <laughs> podcasters. Uh. <laughs> I, uh, I, I got my hoodie sweatshirt in the mail yesterday. So that's, that's the, uh, the membership uh, outfit. Nice. <laughs> well, it was, uh, it's been a really nice conversation, uh, Jerry. You know, I never know how long they're going to go, but this one has gone long, and that's great. I, I love long format. I feel like getting that whole story out there is, is great yeah. as well, you know? And, um, yeah, yeah. And, and funnily enough, I have the occasional message that people say it's too long and I should make them short. And then I have <laughs> many messages that say, hey, we love the long form. So I guess uh, it sticks to this way for now. <laughs> but that's cool, like, because it's... It's it's your channel. It's your it's podcast. Thing, yeah. Like, hey, man, this yeah. is my platform, and this is how I like it. Exactly. But anyways, I will uh, I will let you go. I know you have uh, some friends flying in, you said, and as well, it's my uh, my daughter's bedtime soon, so I want to get in there and tuck her in yeah. and uh, do Wonderful. that. So thanks for your time. I'm glad we made this happen. I know we had a yeah, couple of delays this week. Um, 
life gets in the way and uh, say la vie, right? Yeah, so it is. I will end the recording. You don't have to hang up and uh, we'll chat for another minute or two. Talk soon. Cool. Bye-bye. I want to end the show by thanking all my listeners once again for the emails and comments I regularly receive from you. It really helps motivate me and keep me going with this project and to continue sharing people's amazing stories. If you have questions or comments, you can email me at bike at bikepackadventures.ca or go to bikepackadventures.ca and shoot me a message through the contact form. You can also check out the webpage for past podcast episodes, bikepacking routes throughout Canada, blog posts, videos, and touring tips. Lastly, I'd like to once again thank all the individuals and companies that are supporting the podcast. If you are enjoying the show and like what I'm doing, you can become one of my show supporters by going to patreon.com slash bikepackadventures. And for just a few dollars a month, you can help keep this show going. You can also help out by sending a one-time donation through PayPal. This money all goes back into the podcast, help me to cover the costs associated with running the show, buy new equipment when necessary, and produce the high-quality content that you've become accustomed to. Much appreciated, and keep on pedaling.